0: Mark Miller, and I am a senior attorney, and I manage the Florida office for Pacific Legal Foundation. So I manage an office in Florida for an organization called Pacific Legal. We're based in Sacramento. We're about 45, 46 years old. And what we do is fight on behalf of the little guy individuals who are trying to make a living and trying to make it a little bit easier for them to either own property or run a business and cut any red tape they might have uh, when trying to run that business or own that property with the local, state, or federal government.
1: Well, Ed Vidal yeah, tells yeah. us that Miami-Dade County is uh, number one in the nation in startups. Is that true?
2: Miami Not really, or just number, in Florida? Number, number, no, but Mark, it well, you, you seems to me like you're taking on the administrative state.
0: Yes, yeah, so very much so. You know, when I mentioned that we try to cut red tape, that effectively oftentimes what we're doing is, is as you said, Is um, taking on the administrative state. We do that in DC, whether it be Fish and Wildlife Service or EPA, um, Department of Interior, could be any number of the output soup of agencies we have, or it could be here in the state, Florida, where you might deal with your county, you might need to take county commission or your South Florida Water Management District or what have you.
2: Yeah, we. I heard uh, Embraer is a Brazilian aircraft manufacturer, and they were selling so many planes in North America, they needed to have a support base. So I heard a story that they came up to Dade County, and they talked to several of the small airports where they could uh, base their fleet. And they found that there was more corrupt than what they faced in Brazil. So instead, they went up to Melbourne.
1: Wow. How about well, that? Is that is that a mouthful or what? And not only is he doing, not only did Ed just say that, but one of those airports is owned by my my youngest brother Ernie, which is the
2: maybe that was after the the Opelika,
1: uh, the Opalaca Miami International.
2: Yeah,
1: it's not in Miami International; it's in the Opalaka Airport, but it falls kind of under the aviation department. Opalaka
2: Executive Airport.
1: Yes, and my father, uh, my brother has the western side of it under a land lease. So he basically just called my brother corrupt. Can no, you believe no, no.
2: that? Not no. your brother, the people running Yeah, yeah,
1: not my brother, but the people running it, he says, that's what a concrete conservative does here on 94.5 well, FF. But,
2: Mark, what, what kind of cases are you guys taking that you want to talk to us about?
0: Sure, Recently. so right now we have, um, you know, we do anything that usually involves your constitutional rights, oftentimes your property rights, or it could be, uh, and, and property rights could be teased out in many different ways. It might be environmental where we'll be fighting as i am in right now in louisiana we're fighting the u.s fish and wildlife service uh, in a case that's known as warehauser or markle and So the warehauser case went to the u.s supreme court last fall and we won that case eight to nothing it was argued when justice kavanaugh was not yet confirmed it was actually the first day of the term and, and it, it makes for a fun story because it's about a frog um kermit the frog if you will kermit the dusky gopher frog and what you have is you have when you have an endangered species, as we, of course, have many of them in Florida, the federal government has to uh, designate habitat for the endangered species, in this case, the dusky gopher frog. And that critical habitat for the frog under federal law means that you really won't be able to do anything and get federal government's permission unless Fish and Wildlife Service signs off on it, because they're going to be afraid it will impact that endangered species, because, of course, we want to bring back endangered species from the brink of extinction. Well, here you've got a frog, and it's a dusky gopher frog. It used to be known as the Mississippi gopher frog, and it was known as the Mississippi gopher frog because he lived in Mississippi, and he was endangered in Mississippi. federal government set aside some land, critical habitat for that frog in Mississippi where it lived and could survive but then some environmentalists didn't think that was enough, and so they demanded that the federal government look at other lands outside of Mississippi, and that's what happened. The The federal government decided to designate my client's land in Louisiana, uh, forest land, about 1,500 acres or so, critical habitat for a frog, a Mississippi Gopher frog, that didn't live in Louisiana, and in fact couldn't live there if you put it there. The conditions are not... Uh, pro- proper or appropriate for that frog to survive. If you took that frog and put them on my client's land in Louisiana, the frog would not survive, and that sort of defeats the purpose of the Endangered Species Act. So we sued and we said, Federal Government, well, you can't do that. You can't, and by the way, they changed the name of the frog. That Mississippi frog got changed to the Dis- Dusky Gopher frog, I guess, to throw us off the scent. We sued and said, Federal Government, I you can't, it's certainly a good idea to protect endangered species, but you can't be doing that by then. Uh, claiming private property without compensation on behalf of a frog, when that frog can't even survive there. And so the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The lower court said, yes, the federal government can do that, in fact. And we took the Supreme Court and we won. The federal government, the, excuse me, Chief Justice Roberts, writing for unanimous court, said the lower court needed to try again. And so he didn't rule, effect. Uh, he didn't end the case for us. The, the court did not end the case. But they did, uh, rule heavily in our favor in terms of saying federal government, you can do a much better job of showing how this habitat could ever be, critical habitat for a species that can't live there without dramatic change. Robert made the point in the oral argument, why couldn't you just simply build a hot house? up in Alaska and call that critical habitat for the frog, because if you change the conditions enough in Alaska, the frog could live there too. Uh, my client used to like to say, let's let's create critical habitat for that, uh, for a polar bear down in Miami, which I guess is on point for where we're talking right now. And he said, what's the difference? Because if you change the conditions in Miami enough, then the polar bear could live there. And that's the same issue with the frog. And so what we're doing there is we're, we're defending private property rights through an environmental law. And And uh, that's the kind of thing we do at Pacific Legal Foundation.
2: Okay. Well, I think one of the issues that I find uh, heartening here is that I think when it comes to taking on the administrative state, the conservative and libertarian movement has had some success, and I expect it will continue to have success. For example, on deference by courts to the administrative agencies that's under attack. Are you guys uh, faced any of that?
0: Absolutely. So we um, we have a separation, a center for separation of powers up in D.C. as part of our Pacific Legal Foundation um, umbrella, where we specifically focus on uh, trying to get rid of the deference doctrine. So whether it be Chevron deference or the hour deference, try to get judges to do the judging. Too often, Congress doesn't want to do its job. It doesn't want to make the law. Right. So what it does is it makes this a real general law and the reason, I should say, Congress doesn't want to make the laws is because they'll get voted out of office if right. they write laws that people don't like.
2: They want to shirk responsibility.
0: Exactly. It, they shirk responsibility is a way to avoid responsibility and um, to not get voted out. Then they expect the agencies, the of agencies that work under the president, the executive branch, uh, to then create regulations to fill in the gaps of these general laws that Congress passes, and then... they they even cede to those agencies the ability to interpret the way those rules, those regulations, and even the statutes uh, get applied. And the courts, starting in the mid-80s, well, actually going back much longer than that when it comes to Howard deference to Seminole Rock, but for decades the courts have said, we're going to defer, whenever it's ambiguous, whenever the law or regulation is ambiguous, we're going to defer to the way the agency looks at it. And so what you have happening there is... If you have a Republican administration, it's going to interpret the rules and regulations and statutes one way. And then if you have a Democrat administration, it's going to interpret those same rules, regulations, and statutes a different way. So rather than having a nation of laws where the laws are applied uniformly to everyone, you have a nation of men or women where the men and women in each administration are deciding differently how they want to apply the law to you. That's exactly what our founding fathers were trying to avoid when we had our revolution. And so here at Pacific Legal Foundation, we push back against that idea, those deference ideas, where the, the courts, which were designed by our founding fathers to be the ones who uh, interpret the law, are instead deferring to the executive branch, which is not there, there to at least be of the law, but not to be interpreting it. And so that's really what Pacific Legal Foundation does. In many ways, where you can call us a government watchdog.
2: Well, I think that's great, and I agree with what you're saying, with one exception. I think both administrations, Democrats and Republicans, tend to lean in one direction, which is to expand government power.
0: I would say um, I would agree with you that they may interpret it differently, but they it's just a ma- it's just a matter of degree. Yep. Either way. They people who get power, typically, not always, you know, but typically, people who get power want more power. and you know, that's really the opposite of what our country' is about. It's supposed to be about individual liberty. We give government the uh, authority uh, to govern, but they don't give us our rights. We give them the authority to govern, and then people who get in the government oftentimes get that backwards. They think that we live by their leave. In fact, uh, and I've got a very good example for you that comes out of Europe. Neck of the woods, and I don't mean to sound critical of my f- fellow libertarian organizations because they they mean very well, and the legislatures mean well. And what I'm talking about is these, these, these this new law that's going to be passed here in Florida about having vegetable gardens in your front yard. So you had someone who owned a piece of property in Miami uh, who should, by all rights, have the right to have a vegetable garden in the yard if they don't live in HOA, they haven't given it up to their HOA or what have you. But if, in terms of being in a a regular neighborhood the government should not be able to tell you what you do with your yard unless it's absurd what you're trying to do so you know it put threaten the peace if you will mm-hmm. having a vegetable garden certainly doesn't but unfortunately our courts here in florida dropped the ball and said that in fact local governments can make it illegal to have a vegetable garden in your yard so now our legislature in its infinite wisdom is passing a law to say that yes indeed you you can have a vegetable garden. And that's nice. I'm happy they're doing that. But the, the legislature, who's sort of pushing that bill, the legislator, who's out of Jacksonville, Rob Bradley, he said, we're giving you the right to have a vegetable garden. That's baloney. And so he, he, exactly. He means well, but he has it completely backwards. Yep. We have the right to have a vegetable garden, and you need to get out of the way. Not think that you're on high, you the king, are giving us... Something. Oh, gee, aren't we lucky to have the right to have a vegetable garden? No, no, to have the privilege to have a vegetable garden—that you're allowing it. No, no, no. We have the right, government. You're supposed to be protecting our rights, not taking them away and then giving them back to us like you're some uh, generous benefactor, benevolent dictator, if you will.
1: So, I think Hialeah is spelling relief here because <laughs> <you know, laughs> I'm no. sure that—and uh, what Hialeah is not really known for—is vegetable gardens, but soon will be now because of this. Newfound yeah, wisdom. It, it shouldn't
2: be because. But what are going to do about all, all the chickens right? running around? Yeah, that's the other question. The chickens in yeah, the backyard. The, yeah,
1: the chickens in everybody's backyards. Are they going to go after chickens since they, they they killed the vegetable garden? I mean, since they they freed the vegetable garden, are they are uh, going to they're going to try with chickens now? Because Miami's, well, you know, Miami lives off.
0: Been, I would agree. That's been a local government uh, bugaboo here in Florida. And really across the nation, because um, some of the younger people, millennials, if you will, like to have these backyard chickens. And there, what the local governments are trying to say, as opposed to a vegetable garden, the local governments are trying to say to the chickens that it can spread disease and it can create real real neighborhood problems that go towards the police power that we do think a local government should have within reason to uh, police us. Well, I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree with the validity of those chicken laws, um, those you know, those coop laws, chicken coop laws. Yep. But but it's a far cry from a vegetable garden. There should yeah. be no question that we have rights to grow vegetables in our yard, yep. and it's outlandish that we're in a position now where our legislature thinks it's doing us a favor by right. recognizing what should already be an inherent right well, yeah. in property ownership.
2: Now, now let me ask you a, a related issue, which was the uh, what Kilo versus City of New Britain. Uh, that is uh, taking or uh, eminent domain, and whether for a public or private use, the city of Baltimore has threatened to or has moved to condemn the Pimlico racetrack, home of the Preakness stakes, uh, because they 're in a dispute with the owner. The owner may want to move the the race to another place, Laurel Maryland, a suburb of Baltimore, so the city uh, asserted its right to condemn. The, uh, the 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 racetrack, and they really I haven't heard any uh, public uh, interest or public use for that. Have you? Are you familiar with that case?
0: I did see that when it first came out, and what I find sort of bizarre about it, and I'm sure it's not the first time this has happened, but at least from my, by my lights, it seems unique. Is they're not trying to condemn the racetrack itself, you know, Opimlico where the uh, preness occurs, rather they're trying to. Effectively condemn and take the race, like the you know the Preakness, the name, right. and they don't want to. You know, they don't want that race to be like you know the Indianapolis 500 moving over to Bloomington. Say they don't. You know, it's not so much the Pinlico track. They just don't want the the name Preakness to be moved, and and so it's almost an intangible. It's almost right. like they're trying to condemn an intangible piece of property, right. not a tangible, like kilo. Well, you have a, a little lady with her pink house who's lived there for, for decades, and she doesn't want to move.
2: But still, but because... it's property. Well, wait and a second. And what public use could uh, the city of Baltimore well, claim to
1: have? Well, uh, didn't the, the city of Cleveland claim that the Cleveland Browns had to stay with Cleveland? And That was... And they won that case, and he had to leave to Maryland uh, and create a new name yeah, called and the, the Baltimore Bal- Ravens. And the,
2: Bo- and the Baltimore Ori- uh the Baltimore Colts, moved out of Maryland overnight because they were about to be condemned in the same way. So, in other words, you got
1: two cases where. In one case, the Browns stayed in Cleveland, but in the other case, Indiana kept the Colts.
2: Well, that's because the owner of the Colts moved out in the middle of the night before anything could be what was filed it? against him.
1: Why was it any different than the Cleveland Browns moving to Baltimore?
2: Because they were, well, the Cleveland Browns, in the Cleveland case, the city asserted a uh, right. I'm not familiar with the facts in that case.
1: Yeah, that do would you, be very you know? cool, because that, that, that would apply to the Pimlico case, where uh, you you know, well, the city inherits I, I the name. The
2: NFL always intended to go back to Cleveland. Uh, oh, so in so other words, a, so, Modell, so Modell it. just gave up. They didn't argue it, right? They didn't argue it, and they were happy to have a new name, the Ravens, and they've been a successful franchise. But in this case, I, uh, Mark is right. It's not just the, it's not the racetrack. They want to condemn the race, which is an intangible asset. Uh, you know, it can be run in other places. And I wonder what what public purpose could they claim to have for this?
0: Well, and, and, I want, and I say I would think exactly, it's to bring another investment. The Browns, if I understand right, that was a settlement, so yeah. it wasn't that Cleveland got away with taking the name away from what became the Baltimore Ravens, because you know the Browns ownership, I think, it was Art Modell, moved yes. to Baltimore, and then several years later, the NFL agreed to put another um, franchise, basically an expansion franchise, in Cleveland but they gave the name, the Browns' name, back. But there you're, there. it's a, a little bit different because you're talking about the NFL, you're talking about 32 different teams, And but ultimately, most importantly, it wasn't like a takings litigation. It was a settlement right. that the NFL it worked negotiated.
1: out. Oh, there you right. go. That's the clarification. Settlement.
0: Right. And so here, when it comes to the, the Preakness, I, you know, I think, Mike, you know, I don't really, I haven't looked at the underlying rationale for why they want to move out of Pimlico. I would mm-hmm. assume they're not, be, not as successful in Pimlico as what we think they would be if they moved uh, to another piece well, of Maryland. The city is becoming a, a dangerous
2: dump. Maryland. Baltimore is becoming a dangerous dump. They don't want to have a race there.
0: Yeah, well, like I, yeah, I, I'm familiar, having visited John Hopkins on college tours with my children. It is, uh, it can be dangerous in, in portions of Baltimore. I'm not. I've never been to Pimlico, but it, and it wouldn't surprise me if someone's, you know, some government is willing to build a new racetrack for the owners of the Preakness stakes to try and convince them to move, which is a whole nother right. uh, kettle of fish in terms of government making a
1: mistake. Of so the, the issue is Baltimore. not Pimlico. The issue is pr- the Preakness. The name, the brand, mm-hmm. the Preakness, because exactly. it's one of the Triple exactly. Crown. It's one of the Triple Crown races. Probably that's what it's valuable. Mm-hmm. So it, that could happen in any race and call it the Preakness, especially if you make it, it longer or shorter. Depending on no, no, on...
2: but that it's the right to call it that. Right It makes a difference.
1: So if Maryland is claiming that they have the right to the Preakness name. No, well, name? the
2: city of Baltimore is trying to condemn the name so that the owner of well, the track can. But the name
1: Preakness can... or the name Pimlico? No, the,
2: the name Preakness, the,
1: Preakness. In, the oh, okay, intangible Preakness, property. Okay. Well, it's you know, point that the audience yeah. knows. You know, Mark. The other
2: point that you raised, which is despicable, is that a lot of these racetrack owners they're complaining when the city tries to condemn their intangible property, but at the same time they're very happy to receive subsidies of all kinds.
0: Right, huh? and that's you know that is another boondoggle. Um, you know, when it comes to football stadiums, baseball stadiums, in this case, a racetrack, it wouldn't surprise me if the if the story behind the owners of The the pre-stakes, that intangible name, effectively, Mm -hmm. if they're being enticed to move out of Pimlico with the race, because that new city, whatever it is, again, I haven't researched it, but my guess is someone's trying to buy them off, and unfortunately, that is something we see all too often. That's why the Baltimore Colts ended up becoming the Indianapolis Colts. Probably why Cleveland Browns moved to Baltimore. Certainly, it's why the Raiders hop, skip, and jump around LA and Oakland, and I think Las Vegas, et cetera.
1: Yeah, it's all it's uh, um, it's all about stadium. the Benjamins.
2: It's a stadium.
1: <laughs> well, got... here in Miami, we have the Marlins
2: with a beautiful stadium.
1: Yeah, very expensive a, and very empty. Very empty. Uh, you know, we're, we're people don't realize how low income we are. It's very hard for anybody in Miami to support a forty. Forty game home season. Uh, I was a no eighty-one me- uh, games. Huh? 81. Well, it's ha- half, 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 is at home; the other half is no, away. No, they
2: play one hundred and sixty. Oh, that's games. right. That's yeah. right. Excuse yeah. me,
1: stand corrected. Put that's me in basketball. timeout. Yeah. Excuse me. No, yes, okay. I'm. I've been yeah, that's humiliated even more
2: because there aren't that many corporate headquarters. Yeah, so that
1: makes my case even right. more solid. Yep, it's really hard to sustain. And the worst thing about our teams is that all—if you're a season ticket holder, as I was at one time—to uh, the Heat, the Marlins, and the Dolphins all together. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that they ask for the deposits for the paying around the same time. oh So from a cash flow standpoint, it, it kills you. And I would never let go of the Dolphin tickets because I inherited them from my father since 1970. So there's a certain pedigree about our season ticket. Uh, so I had to give up the uh, the Marlins and the Heat. Well, the Heat, the heat I gave up uh, simply because my partner was a, a doofus about it. But... In the Marlins game, I just couldn't afford the eighty games, man. That was expensive. Mm-hmm. Two t- two seats, and then you still have to afford a beer and, and some popcorn and some hot dogs. Yep. It, it was a crushing blow. And God forbid if the team starts wailing and losing like they do, you you, you know it's murder. It really yep. is. It's uh, you need to see a shrink. Well, I guess if you're a fan of any of Miami teams, you you need that. You know, you see you need psychologist psychological help because mm-hmm. it's hard.
0: No comment on that. But yes, I, you know, with any luck, Derek Shear's got the Marlins going in the right direction now.
2: I don't think so. There's nobody on the Marlins. So you guys are up in Palm Beach, is that right?
0: That's right. Our office is up in Palm Beach Garden. So I guess in theory, we are certainly, you know, our local teams would be, in terms of closest, would be the Marlins and the Heat. And, um, and the uh, Finns. Right. And, I, you know, the Finns, you know, we're talking about stadiums. At least the Dolphins, if I recall correctly, that current owner whose name escapes me. Ross. Ross. The, the changes he made to the stadium, he made privately. Right. He for them himself, as opposed to the Marlins. But, again, I don't fault uh, Sampson, who I think was the main person who got that new stadium built. It's really yeah. the city leader's fault. Who allowed him
1: basically to steal the, from us the
0: cleaners.
1: <laughs> he took a, us to it's the cleaners. A huge expense. Well, yeah. it cost Mayor Alvarez his uh, mayor's race. It was uh, it was none other than an owner of a, a professional team, uh, the owner of the Eagles at the time. Um, he's the one that did the petition drive to get rid of the mayor. And the mayor didn't finish out his term. He was ousted by petition
0: because
2: the deal on the Marlins the Marlin Stadium was Stadium, such a bad man. deal for the count. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was the, uh, the car
0: dealer, right?
1: The, uh, yeah, the car dealer. The, I forgot his name. The, uh, BMW. Uh, Jeez, he owned the he owned the uh, he owned the Eagles. Yeah. But M- Mark, yeah, I Brayman. i Norman you, Brayman, That's right.
2: I see you down here for at the Federalist Society events, right?
1: I do.
0: I tend I tend to get down there for Federalist Society events, and I happen to listen to one of one of. He's not on at the same time as you are, so it's not a competitor. But Dan Levitard, I'm a fan of on the uh, sports radio, so I I'm pretty familiar with the sports. Uh, issues in Miami, and that's what come you know, Well, we've got
1: a sports guy here Monday um, through Friday, a young kid who's who's knocking it out of the park for us. It's called Burnt Eggs, Soggy Bacon Live in the Kitchen with Cranky Frankie. He doesn't like me to call him Cranky, but he has yeah. that cranky
2: voice. He's got yeah. that three and he's to, very good. 3 to 5 p.m. on Mondays and 4 to 6 Thursday through Friday. Is that yes, right?
1: Yes, and he's really interested in uh, teaching you Basically, how to gamble: fantasy football, baseball, and basketball. Yeah, he,
2: baseball, it's impossible to gamble. Yeah, he's.
1: You know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he really I, teaches I, you. I know. He that really teaches you uh, based on how he's betting. He can't really. He can't can't take bets. I and, beg
2: and, him not to. But and I, I think there's a Federalist Society branch up in Palm Beach County now, right?
0: Yes, and I am. I'm the. I guess the jury leader of the Palm Beach division. You know, it's really we consider ourselves. Uh, three parts of the South Florida Federal Society. That would be Miami, which is really the headquarters, and then we have a Fort Lauderdale division and a uh, Palm Beach division. And I, you know, here are sort of my ancillary duties for Pacific Legal, it's certainly not part of my job, but sort of um, as a side sort of hustle, if you will, although they don't pay me, so I don't know why I'm calling it a side hustle. But anyway, I, I manage the Federal Society chapter. And Federal Society is about, you know, separation of powers, is it making sure judges. Um, understand what their role is. Their judges, Their role is not to make the law. That's the legislator's job. Their job is to interpret the law. And um,
2: Have you gotten involved in some of the uh, judicial appointments over the last few years?
0: Certainly. Uh, Governor DeSantis on the state side has right. done an excellent job. He picked two judges from the third, from your appeals court right there in Miami, right there by FIU. Right. Um, and moved them up to Tallahassee. Um, Barbara Lagoa, who was the first Cuban-born, first Cuban-American woman to be appointed to the Florida Supreme Court. And then um, Judge Bob Luck, who is um, Robert Luck, who's from Miami as well. And so that was, I think, Justice Lagoa was almost the first thing Governor DeSantis did in terms of his actions once he was inaugurated. I think the very next day he flew into Miami on that uh, plane. (laughs) If you follow the issues he had with the uh, plane, they didn't have a. You know, got
1: get, yeah, Rick Scott uh, 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 well, got
2: rid of the plane. I think he, uh, what Governor DeSantis needs to tell the state police to uh, confiscate a good plane, you know? Exactly. exactly. Civil asset for for sure. It's
1: only a matter of time, and I'm sure Governor DeSantis understands that he can see Cuba from his backyard. A running like, plane. Like Sarah Palin <laughs> can see Russia from her window. Um, I'm sure DeSantis <laughs> can see Cuba from Tallahassee, can't he? Yep. I would think so. I think a lot of people have to understand that man. Governors need security. Man, they they should have their yeah. own.
2: But they, it, it they should it, have their own jet. But it seems, Mark, that the federalist society is really uh, setting its stamp on the government. I know that the uh, federal uh, judiciary is being filled up, and I, I read today or yesterday that uh, uh, Cocaine Mitch, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, is going to streamline the process so that more judges can be approved.
0: Yeah, there's a rule that says there's supposed to be 30 hours yeah. of debate on each appointment uh, before there's a vote. And I think he's trying to cut it down to three. Yep. And certainly when we're, we're two and a half years or you know, two plus years into Trump's administration, and there's still many executive offices that are open and vacant with appointees hanging out. And then, of course, judges. There's there's over 100 district and appellate judges, judicial openings that are currently active that need to be filled. And so, yes, I'm I'm glad Senator McConnell – you know, you don't want to get rid of uh, rules that are longstanding without uh, a good reason. But at this point, I think Senator McConnell has been given the good reason because of the intransigence Mm -hmm. and the uh, unreasonableness of the opposition. Because the opposition isn't really based on substance. It's based on just trying to slow down the process. And really, that's not – the way it's supposed to work.
2: Yeah, and I think they appointed a couple of judges to the Ninth uh, Federal Appellate Circuit uh, despite the objections from the California senators.
0: Yes. Um, generally, uh, the blue-slip process would have said that your home state senators had to approve any sort of nomination if they didn't return the blue-slip, that was a way of slowing it down. In fact, Senator Rubio did that uh, to Senator, to President Obama a few times with some, actually with one federal appointment out of Miami, if I recall correctly, for the Southern District. um, But effectively, uh, McConnell is saying, I'm not going to abide by that, and I'm going to, uh, we're going to nominate, or the president's going to nominate, and then we're going to confirm judges out of California that uh, Senator Harris and and DiFi, Senator Feinstein, didn't approve. And so I, I think... Ultimately, if you can get a majority of the votes, really, why should one senator from your home state have a veto? It's not really the way it's supposed right. to work.
2: Absolutely. And that, should, that bodes well for uh, taking on the administrative state. Absolutely. I think that's one of the few uh, areas where the conservatives and libertarians are on the offensive in an effective way. Because you look at some of the other things like cutting uh, government spending, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done there.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think... If we don't have the the highest deficit ever, it's certainly close, yes. and the debt, you know, the debt is almost unimaginable. And so, you know, you do wonder, particularly with, for the first two years of the president's administration, when he had uh, control of the Senate and the House, why they couldn't get spending under control.
2: Well, now, you know, a lot of those harder. Republicans in the in the Congress uh, under Paul Ryan they were pretty they were pretty wimpy. You know, they they thought that uh, they thought the Russian collusion was for real. And they were not really working with Trump for the first seven or nine months of his administration.
0: I, you know, you, you said it, and I'm not going to disagree. Yeah. I won't Agree or disagree? Because I'm supposed to be apolitical as a 501c3.
2: Okay. No. Finally, I think a lot of what would what, agree with you. what they did was uh, they finally in December of 17 they passed the tax law, which has been very helpful in cutting taxes, reforming. Uh, the taxes so we have a territorial tax system we're the only major country to not have that so you know that was a big achievement but that was the only achievement in that first year so that's where you go but i'm glad that you guys are working on all this stuff uh because well, i think we need to attack in all directions
1: i think I, I can't thank you enough i i hope that you'll you'll call the concrete conservative again here in 94.5 fm and uh Thank you very much for your call. It's been uh, pretty cool.
2: Thank you, Mark, Thank you and I'll see you. On. Take care. See you at Bye-bye. the Federalist Society events. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So, okay, I, I'm going to pick a sour grape with you, and I ask a question. I want it answered.
2: No, not necessarily. It depends. That's a legal uh, response. Very often, it you depends. Know,
1: you um, you know that Mac on the Rock has the power of disbarment.
2: Oh, okay. Good. So
1: when I ask two attorneys a question. Like Reagan said, I paid for this microphone. <laughs> I want my questions answered.
2: All right. Well, what question do you want answered?
1: No, it's too late because I don't want to, I don't want you to answer it. I I don't think you're give me an accurate one anyway. I want the caller to answer my question.
2: What was your question?
1: I forgot now.
2: Ah, okay. Well, you got to remember.
1: I don't remember. It was the first comment I made. It was something to the effect of uh, Miami-Dade County being the number one County and you just shook your head. Therefore, he oh, didn't answer. Oh, you mean for uh, uh,
2: startups? Startups. We'll, no, that, we'll, we'll ask Gary. Uh, well, he could have. He was free Gary to say, Hoover. "I don't know the answer." Oh, okay. No, Gary Hoover. will, will have the answer because I'm challenging them. Gary's calling at six oh five. He's a leading entrepreneur from Flatonia, Texas. He founded. I, the, I'm
1: assuming there's no mountains in Flatonia. There no <laughs> in or all the women are just you know they're no, not really. No, no. They're is, not really you
2: know. No, it's a uh, it's Tortillaville. Uh huh. Oh, so, you went uh, there. Yeah, that was yeah, that yeah, was pretty easy. Yeah, that, yeah. that was a setup for a joke. Caribbean, yes. Caribbean humor. But right. no, the, he he will tell. We'll ask him about that. But the next speaker, next caller, is going to be Tamara Colbert, uh, who will be calling in from the convention states because convention states is having He's some real a success. They're on the roll. They're one state a, a month. So by the end of this year, they'll have. They're not at fifteen states. They'll be at like, you know, twenty-four states. But it's important to talk to a guy like Mark Miller. And we have several people from public interest, conservative, libertarian law firms calling in because we have to attack this too big state in all directions. Well, we
1: can't let the Democrats always claim that they're fighting for the little man. No it, way. And no. On this show, and he's not. we're no, letting no, the people they, know
2: he, and he, the Democrats
1: doing, don't really fight for the little man. Our folks fight for the little man. Why? Because they litigate and they go to court.
2: Yeah, and they protect your property they rights They don't have
1: and your business. the ACLU going after people. That's right. What are the other num- the under bumpkins that are out there? And uh, double NACP. Yes. With, uh, the EPA, which is on the other side. That's a
2: government agency. Yes. Government. But we got to take them all on.
1: arm of the <laughs> ACLU.
2: That's right. Um, but, but we have to take them out. And I think this is why we have several callers from uh, the, uh, we got the Pacific Legal Foundation. We've had callers from Institute for Justice. Now, this
1: I want to ask you, this Federal Society you're always mentioning, mm-hmm. uh, is it like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous? Where It's, it's very just, similar, yes. Yeah, it's just uh, real patriots that are just down and out? No, and it's, it's just... founded in
2: 1982, and what it is is it, it's founded in college law school campuses, but now there's city practitioners. And what it does is it focuses on conservative lawyers in litigation and administrative practice. That is, conservatives that are litigating... In other
1: words, for the judgeships to be appointed... Well,
2: well that's be, it's become a source of judgeships. So people who are in the Federalist Society are usually practicing attorneys, and they are mostly litigators, not so much business and corporate attorneys like what I do, but and also they're in administrative agencies. And so they're litigating with the administrative agencies, they're dealing with them, and they do it from a, from a conservative point of view. But what it does, though, is it has... Uh, It has meetings and speakers like we recently had uh, one of the justices from the Arizona Supreme Court who was himself, Clint Bolick, who was himself the general counsel of the Institute for Justice. So he was one of these libertarian litigators who is now a a state Supreme Court justice. He was here in Miami about a, a month ago and we had a dinner and we asked him questions and it was very useful. So there are a lot of good speakers, for example, At Yale Law School, they recently invited one of the litigators from from uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a religious liberty litigator. Maybe we should have him call in sometime.
1: They they uh, represent the the Little Sisters of the Poor.
2: They represent people like that. The little people have religious. No, in this case, it was the litigator that did the masterpiece theater, masterpiece cake shop. Oh, I knew. So, I knew it was one of those national So they, they, so so the Yale Law School chapter of Federalist Society invited him uh to give a talk and the Yale Law School wouldn't let it wouldn't let him come in. Unbelievable. not let him, so it's well, another example. With,
1: with Trump's executive order they well, got to reconsider. We hope
2: so. That's right. That's cuz uh, all these universities get a lot of research money from the federal government. They also get a lot of loan money for their students from the federal government. So now with that executive order, there'll be a basis for saying... Well, Look, someone's
1: got to tell Bernie Sanders that the reason why school is so damn expensive is because the government's involved in that paying is, the tuition. That
2: is a big part of it, yes.
1: It's not a big part of it. Yeah, Stop it's it's, being flimflam. It the is biggest the, part, the, biggest the biggest part, part of part. it. The biggest part, absolutely. we I, we got to remind our audience, uh, you guys are free to call us in at 305-365-7777. Obviously, if you're hearing that call in, there is a call in, then obviously we can't answer the call. We're at also... Toll free 645 five W S Q F, which is ninety seven seven three, and again, the concrete conservance is on every Mondays five to seven, and then we have another show, um, seven to eight called the Statues and Stories. So if you want to get a little extra punch, you yeah. listen to Adam Levison,
2: American Legal History, very uh, illustrated. Yeah, uh, a,
1: a look back. We, uh, me and Ed, try to look forward, even if it's only six inches. We always looking forward. Um, I'm the guy who offers ideas and, and, and Ed just offers, you know, reform, incremental who change. Pulls them, yes, yes. Yeah, just doesn't have any vision or anything. Uh, yep. He sees about four inches of the six inches that we do together. So uh, if you want to talk about ideas, you call me personally, Mac on the Rock. You can go to my YouTube channel, Mac on the Rock Rampage. There's about uh, 180, 200 yeah. videos I've done. We in need
2: there. to revive our LinkedIn uh, page.
1: Yeah, if you can help us with a LinkedIn page because Ed wants the responsibility but he doesn't pick up the skills to do that, <laughs> uh, we have a LinkedIn page that's kind of. Uh, we have a
2: student intern that's uh, potentially. Yes, to help and if that.
1: you want to, if you, the millennials want to understand each other, well, uh, on Friday we're hoping that a young intern called Maggie. Madeline. M- Madeline. Sorry. And her show is going to be called Ask Madeline.
2: What time is she going to be on?
1: I believe she's going to be 12 to 1 on this Friday. so you might right. want to tune in live stream. She's a really energetic girl who's thinks like a millennial. And since I do not, I can't right. really tell you what she's going to talk about.
2: If you want to learn about millennials, listen to that.
1: Well, if you are a millennial.
2: Okay. Or you want to learn. You want to do research.
1: Yeah. Or if you want to be like Ed, you know acting a- acting like... Curmudgeonly. Know, curmudgeonly wants to learn understand why he didn't understand his kids throughout their lives, then he'll probably listen in too. So I do have a millennial child. Uh, you don't, and Your kids are all in your 30s already?
2: 30, yeah, 30, 31, 29, 31. They
1: were the generation...
2: They were born just before the Berlin Wall fell.
1: Yeah, so what was that? That wasn't Generation X, was it? I
2: don't know, 88 and uh, end of 89.
1: There's a name for that generation. Anyways, so who's our next caller, Mr.?
2: No, it's Tamara Colbert. She should oh, be calling Colbert. in from North Texas. She's not to be confused
1: with Tamara Colbert of. Tamara Holder. Holder. Of, uh, Where did she go? Texas? She was fantastic. Re- I don't know. She rebutted Hannity no. really well. She, yeah, she well. Put up her, she put up her defense. Tamara here.
2: Colbert is uh, the media national media head for the Convention States Project. That's and right. It, as you know, they have. She's de- called
1: here several times.
2: Yeah, so she will. Hopefully, uh, be checking in. I think that she's going. to... The, the real question I have is, why are they all of a sudden picking up such momentum this year? Because they, they hadn't had any passage since June or May of seventeen. That I was think Missouri. it's because
1: we're, we're.
2: You think this radio station may have helped? Uh, I think
1: that's one hundred percent the reason.
2: There you go. Okay. I think
1: we branded them. You know, we we put up we we put up our dukes. We we basically created boundaries here. We are Hispanic patriots, which is like, uh, I don't know, half of a 1% of the population of the United States is actually people like you and I who see America, wants America and lives and live in the dream because that's what it is. We live the dream here on the Concrete Conservative and we don't budge, right? Because we're setting concrete. Mm -hmm. That's the reason why we call ourselves a Concrete Conservative. So anytime Ed acts a little bit like quicksandish, or that his concrete is still like wet, I remind him, oh, that's some of the reason. No, it is the reason. It's not partly the reason. The problem is that nobody wants to put a finger on what's wrong with America. And I know the answer to that, and he does not. The answer Absolutely. to what's wrong with America is reform. The word reform. I wrote a book with some 49,000 words. Never once used the word reform. I don't believe in incremental change. You want
2: fundamental transformation. I do not want a
1: fundamental transformation. I want fundamental reinvention of the country. I I know that our next generation coming up will come up with ideas that I've offered to them, but they got to grab the baton and run with it because you leave my generation to do it and we'll incrementally ruin it for you. You're looking down at your phone? No, no, no. no.
2: But look at this. We, we just talked to a guy who's working with uh, conservative and libertarian litigators to push back against the administrative state. So I think that's, you know, that's one. There, there are plenty of areas where the conservative movement is on the attack. We're not on the attack when it comes to reining in government spending. That's for sure. But that's the biggest
1: embarrassment, the biggest weakness of the conservative huge, movement. It's
2: a huge weakness. I agree. And you know, the like he said, the Republican Congress during the first two years of the Trump administration didn't do anything. Well, if they anything, also passed
1: the most grotesque uh, budget in the history a huge of mankind.
2: Budget, yeah, that was Paul Ryan, who's supposed to be a. a yeah, it's also McConnell. McConnell, everybody, the whole bunch.
1: And they let Schumer put the yeah. teeth into and Planned then, Parenthood to keep it alive and, and well. 40,
2: and then forty-six of them uh, took early retirement.
1: And then 46, that's the saddest thing. How can you give the House back well, to Pelosi? Well, I think
2: that uh, with Trump has kind of reached a crossroad now. With the end of the Mueller investigation, I think you're seeing him have some real momentum going forward. And now's the time— Yeah, but will
1: he really tighten his belt in the next budget?
2: <laughs> well, he's not. he may not be that kind of guy. But well, you my know what point... they'll do?
1: Watch, and I'm predicting this now. Okay. The next budget will come. And instead of tightening his belt, they're going to give him a, give him a chunk of the wall because they realize he can't beat him. he'll approve it. He'll approve it because he yeah. wants the wall but, so but,
2: bad. But, but the other point, though, is that I think now is the time for the re- conservative Republicans to start recruiting congressional candidates, including here in South Florida, where there were two Democrat uh, freshman congressmen who I think need to be confronted, Donna Shalala and Debbie Murcaso-Powell. Now, Debbie has expressly endorsed. She's sponsor of the Green New Deal. So if we can't find somebody to take around with those credentials, I mean, that would be pretty bad. And the same thing with Donna Shalala. What? Who do you think might be a good candidate for those uh, positions, you know the local political scene?
1: You know, um, the problem is I would have to know where my favorite pick would live in. He has to live in the district, and that's the problem. I would just—
2: Or move into the district.
1: I would just run María de again against her. Everybody already saw the eyesore— you don't want her coming out on, on CNN anymore, Mrs. Shalala. She's two years from now, run against her again. It's...
2: Okay, so maybe Maria Vida will run. Of course. You, will Maria Vida learn anything from her prior uh He had to kiss
1: Trump's ass, yeah. She needs to become a Trumpist. I'll just call her and tell her. Look, you know what it costs you and Corbello. Right. You disrespected the president. You can't do that. You can't shoot inside the tent. We're right. not known for that.
2: Right. Well, Corbello, forget it. He's now got a job at MSNBC or something like that. Uh,
1: yeah, you know what the thing is with Corvello, uh, uh Curbello was a very stand-up guy when it came to building Mass Academy here for Key Biscayne. Yeah, he really uh, showed composure. What was
2: his position then?
1: He was uh, Board of Education. Okay. Sorry, you know, Board of Commissioners. He Miami was. Okay, Dade, he Miami was not a con- board of, Okay. Okay. Um, school board member. Right. And he and Raquel Regalado, who's now running for Xavier Suarez's seat.
2: What is Xavier Suarez's seat? Uh,
1: Dade County Commission. Okay. Represents the area of Little Havana and Key Biscayne and, um, and parts of Coconut Grove. Mm-hmm. She's going to run for that seat, and he's going to try to take on—he's uh, going to go for mayor. So,
2: Really? You think is going to run for no, mayor? No, no, Xavier. Xavier he's going to run for mayor of what? Of the county or of the well, city?
1: Of uh, the county. Okay. He's already been mayor of the city. Back in the, what, late, in late 80s, he was the first, so that will be Q- the first Cuban-American mayor of a major city, yes.
2: So you think he'll run for mayor of the county?
1: Yeah, that's for sure.
2: So that means somebody like uh, Lopez Cantera will be available to run against Donna Shalala if necessary.
1: I don't know where Lopez Cantera lives, you know. They have to live in the district. And for me to say that, I'd have to know that he lives in that that area or move Mm -hmm. in quickly. Or
2: move in this year.
1: You know what happens to a lot of uh, Corbello's district. Uh, David Rivera ran for that; uh, he won it and lost it. Uh, Corbello mm-hmm. won it and lost it. Joe Garcia won it and lost it. Right. It's a very, very. It's uh, a swing district. Black and blue district. Yeah, it doesn't. Have, it's you can't even call it purple. It's uh, it's a it's a very it's a mosh posh of high income and middle income and low income, mm-hmm. and it's a mosh posh of all the Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. And
2: so it doesn't have a core Cuban. Uh... And
1: nor a platform. Okay. They don't even know what they want over there, so they don't have fle- they have fledgling businesses there. They have some agriculture down in the mm-hmm. south part of the district. Homestead. They have uh, the keys. They have the the urban strife that's going on in southern coral uh, reef. Yeah, the coral reef area, west west Kendall. Heights. Yeah, they've got that part as well. Um, it's uh, it's real. It's a complicated district, and it's very liberal. It's just not it's not strong. It doesn't really have real bona fides. It's got a lot, uh, a lot of new, uh, new immigrants, new citizens that are really no.
2: They're U.S. citizens, but they're not Americans.
1: They're probably voting for the first time.
2: Right, and a lot don't. of
1: people. Mm-hmm. And then they've got poor, uh, poor school, uh, poor schools in that area. Uh, they've got the, they've got the best school is the Palmetto Palmetto High, which Palmetto is High standing, but the other schools aren't. They've got this uh, uh, really cool. Uh, Magnet School down there.
2: Is that Old Cutler?
1: The Old, old, depending on the part of Old Cutler you're talking about, Mm -hmm. Old Cutler has uh, two districts. Okay. Uh, You know, only because you go farther south, is a different district. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what to tell you, but as far as Maria Elvira, man, what a mistake we made. Bringing in Donna Shalala, I mean, that was kind of... Maria
2: Elvira was vetted by the congressional leadership in Washington, which ought to tell you that she's a rhino. That's the problem. But if
1: he's never elected before, it's hard to be accused. Rhinos can only be elected people who don't act conservative. You can't call people rhinos unless they're elected.
2: All right. So she she didn't have the, I mean, the conservative. I, I
1: I agree that if you're not there, conservative,
2: there are a lot of I people can tell, who are and you can her. tell.
1: But you really can't call them uh, a Republican name only until they're elected and start acting well, that way.
2: No well I, I met a lot of people in that campaign who were conservative, mostly Cuban, and they would not vote for her. Because they said she she was shoved down our throats by the establishment, and she's not conservative. She's taken a lot of non-conservative and you prefer to positions. Have, I saw shalala. Well, I, that's what I said. Shalala la I, I said on election I'm day. I'm still trying to
1: figure out who in the hell elected her.
2: Well, because that district a lot of the people is, in in the uh, gables, gables, the affluent,
1: the people Coral who, are, who and, liked her as president of UM.
2: Right. Well, but then there's a lot of people who didn't like her as president of the UM because I am the one. I'm one of those. She, they say that she made a lot of re, uh, bad real estate deals.
1: Well, there was one that was terrible.
2: Well, I've heard there were. Some there was more a than Kendall one.
1: campus that she sold against, uh, it was a environmentally sensitive lands mm-hmm. because we didn't have these, there was these hardwoods in that part. Right. Kind of an elevated part of our town. And I've never been an uh, environmentally sensitive develop, anti development person, but she was. Mm-hmm. And therefore, she shouldn't be the one selling this land to the developer. Uh, hypocrisy, yeah, basically. Right.
2: Um, The other thing I've heard is that she didn't really uphold the standards at uh, UM in terms of faculty hiring because she was more into diversity and inclusion.
1: Classic Pinko.
2: I'm looking into that some more. So we'll see. I I just
1: want to just get her off having to see her, looking at her. You know, you know, uh, you know what what I just did? Can you believe it? He's trying to push me to go to rock and roll because he's running out of things to say.
2: Well, I'm going to try to get my uh, our caller.
1: Oh, you're going you're gonna to text your caller? Yep. yep. So that means that the caller's ignoring us on the, the concrete? The caller cons-
2: probably got confused because it's uh, she's on Central Time.
1: Ah! Well, guess what? It looks like I'm just going to be mouthing off because I'm not going to music. All Why? Because right. I'm a concrete conservative. And us concrete conservatives don't bail.
2: You stick it out.
1: We stick it out. We sweat it out. We're surrounded by dumb And it's, you know, it's stay low or stay high, but stay. Plain and simple. So what are we going to do? We're going to talk about Trump. Oh, yeah? I just bought my No Collusion shirt, by the way. So it's my next T-shirt. No Collusion? No Collusion. And it's a fantastic shirt. I'm very proud to wear it. I've got a bunch of shirts so that when I go on Facebook Live, my shirt says something. And I enjoy my shirts. Like uh, teach your kids about taxes. Eat fifty percent of their ice cream. <laughs> those are those kind of shirts that I like. You know, um, we are we're the lonely the lonely few, the taxpayer. Hmm. Uh, I got all kinds of shirts. Um, you know, trickle up socialism.
2: Well, this um, end of the Mueller investigation, I think, looks like a real crossroad, and Trump seems to have gotten a, a lot of new momentum. And not only new momentum, but a lot of people are coming I don't think around. it's
1: momentum. I think it's uh, a rest assurance right. that the other party is anti-American.
2: Well, that, we knew that before, but now it's been The Democratic confirmed. Party
1: has always been anti-American.
2: Well, it's interesting because uh, some, one of the writers, uh, Michael Barone, who's a, a, a pundit in uh, Washington, one of his theories is that the Democrat Party has always been like the people who don't think themselves quite Americans. And it goes back to you know the Andrew Jackson. He was a newcomer American, and and the Irish. Well, he,
1: it was he who was called the Jackass in eighteen twenty eight, and he loved it. And, he and made it the stayed
2: donkey, right? <laughs> he and made so, it. The,
1: he kept it as a moniker to this day. You there, would think the so Democrats very, would very, get rid of them. Very often
2: now. in American history, the Democrats are the people that are contrary to the mainstream of America, like the Irish Catholics when they started immigrating in the fourteen eighties into the uh, big cities in the Northeast and the Midwest. Then the Confederates. I Wait, mean, you Confederacy... just
1: say you said 1480s, uh, 1840s, 1840s, 1840s. Lapus lingue.
2: Yeah, and then the 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 Confederacy was a Democrat project. It was all the Southern slaveholders who wanted to break from the Union, so they attacked the Union, and that was so slavery is a Democrat project, and then segregation for the next hundred years after 1865 was a Democrat project. So Same with the always, New
1: Deal and the Great Society. Including the New Deal.
2: The New Deal was... Uh, the welfare state. Well, not only a welfare state, but it was also a segregated uh, welfare state. Remember, the first Supreme Court justice that Franklin Roosevelt was able to appoint was in 1937, and there was Hugo Black, from a senator from Alabama, who had been a lawyer for the Klan. So this was not... The a Klan, yes. Yeah. So the New Deal had its had it you know a lot for example if you look at a lot of the new deal housing and finance policies they were redlining from the federal government back then in the in 1930s and 40s.
1: Well, Judge Brandeis is one of the nicely most eloquent yes. quoters in American history. Mm-hmm. And he was a frigate communist. It's amazing. Yep. I mean, if you if you listen to the guy, if you read out loud mm-hmm. his incredible quotes, I wish I, can, I had the ability to remember.
2: No, uh, uh, My
1: God, they sounded so damn no. individualistic. And they Sun- weren't.
2: Sunlight is the best disinfectant. That's my God is that for. is that true That's or true. what yes
1: and disclosure guess, right, and who's not disclosing the Democrats well, they're, not all disclo- right. they're not disclosing so what Hillary's the, up
2: to. I think Trump is uh, on the on the rebound I and think, then, of
1: course they're accusing us of not disclosing because the the Mueller report is an outside oh
2: baloney uh, you know? baloney so but i but I think that, that this new momentum that Trump has has to be captured, and i first of all, I hope that they will investigate and if necessary put in prison people like. James Comey. I want and,
1: Lynch on this line. Well,
2: right. Okay, that would be fine, too. Comey, okay, is a, is Brennan. It, it
1: could be a federal crime to climb up federal
2: it is taxiway a, well, into an
1: airplane well, to see an ex-president.
2: Well, I can tell you, yeah, that, uh, Loretta Lynch.
1: I want to know if, she's got a, if, if Loretta's got a, like a bite mark or something from, I don't know. From that, Loretta Lynch is definitely
2: pretty crooked. So I, I want that to be pursued. But also, I think we need to use How about this. the guy
1: who was supposed to investigate? Uh, he's lost in the wind somewhere. Uh, he has a name. <laughs> Um, but they 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 put him like in witness protection program the the person who was supposed to invest uh in the DOJ was supposed to investigate the Clintons uh forgot his name if you keep on talking i'm going to go I search have, his I name
2: have, i have no idea who you're talking about but
1: now, how about this let's get a little bit cubanness into the show okay. isn't it kind of odd for us Cuban Americans we're only 4% of the hispanic population right. and American Cubans are even less than mm-hmm. that because you know they're like me they're born here american cubans and you got Sarah Carter, the heroine, who's Cuban American yes, or American her mother Cuban. Her mother. mother's Cuban. Then you got Jim Acosta, Obilio, Obilio, which is a total Guajiro name. Jim Acosta, the other side of the coin, which is the 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 hedonist. The oh,
2: he's a Cuban American too. Yes. Well, but you know, father, Cuban, they're Cuban American. So, isn't it pretty cool. Sides. Father on both there sides. Are three uh, Hispanic senators, and all three of them are Cuban. Except now, I think there's one from Nevada. But uh, there's Menendez from New Jersey, and he's pretty crooked, and he's a Democrat. He's hey, a...
1: he was he was off the hook. Stop calling him crooked.
2: All right, well, and then there's uh, little Marco here in Florida. Uh, it's funny, little Marco has this new uh, parent-paid uh, uh, leave, but he's going to finance it by going into the bankrupt Social Security system. Yeah. So that that tells you where he stands, and then and
1: Ted, he fights uh, he fights Trump on the on his emergency order. Yeah,
2: that's a, what. An and then idiot. He sit,
1: and then he stands behind him over in Lake Okeechobee,
2: Okeechobee, like nodding his head when. Trump like, are they going to talk? Are they
1: going to talk about me? They're going to mention me. What a doofus. And Trump mentioned him and turned around and shook his hand.
2: Yeah, right. I thought that was then, as but, diplomatic but, as Trump. But will you, you got to admit, uh, Ted Cruz is doing very well with his beard.
1: Not only that, but I believe he should be Senate Majority Leader, and you should be agreeing with me. That's the perfect. I have
2: no objection to that.
1: You have no objection, but you don't think it's uh, he stands a chance, and I do think.
2: No, no. Well, hopefully he will, because you know John Cornyn is in a very tight race. Cornyn is number two right now. He's in a very tight race. Oh, that means Cornyn wants
1: it for himself. Cornyn
2: wants it, but Cornyn needs help from Cruz to make sure that Cornyn wins, because Texas is going to be a battleground next year, and I think one of the Castro brothers from San Antonio. The congressman.
1: Jeez, I thought it was just Raul Joaquin. and Fidel.
2: No, well, they're, they're, these guys are very similar, Joaquin <laughs> and Julian. Yeah, we well, just was, drink
1: clearer water, that's all.
2: Julian is uh, was former Secretary of Housing and Suburban Development for Obama, and now he's uh, running for president. He's in favor of reparations.
1: And you believe that. Yes. That's why, you know what, You when you hear the, that they're fought, fighting for reparations, that blacks deserve something from people who have never owned slaves. You know they're losing a, a big chunk of well, the black vote to Trump
2: because well that's because Trump's getting like
1: about 15 Candace, The Candice,
2: Owens, yeah, she is. I think she's a real star. She is a real threat uh, to the uh, kind of progressive plantation. Even in the though she's marrying a white guy, hey, that's you're a free person in America. You can marry whoever is silly enough. Lo- to, what's
1: love got to do with it?
2: Well, it, I'm sure they're in love, but you can marry whoever. Because a, uh, I've
1: been I've been reading stuff here on Instagram and they're annoyed. A lot of Who's black people black people. Why? It's yeah, her, she married a white guy. Oh, that's why she wanted to be famous so she can uh mix race marriage. Oh, I get it now. On. And it's hey, I'm just reading the stuff that I that I that I, that I, that I see out there. I, I'm sorry, man, but uh the the one moment I had uh, a chance to uh to meet them both at the same time, uh I met them backstage at Nova High. When they came here for Turning Point USA, for Turning Point USA, and um, I got the I got the feeling that their their so their adrenaline is you know so overwhelming for themselves personally that they have a tough time focusing on anybody else after their um, their their shows. I call them shows because they don't look scripted, yeah. but no, I, no they, they,
2: definitely Turning Point USA are uh, is full of performers. Yes. No question.
1: These people can rebut. Like, it's going out of style. Yeah, they're
2: good. Uh, Do you know that Turning Point USA, maybe I can make a public address announcement for uh, Americans for Prosperity and Turning Point USA is sponsoring a school choice event in Doral, Florida, next Saturday, uh, April 6th, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in Doral, Florida. So look up Americans for Prosperity and Turning Point USA School choice event in Doral, Florida on Saturday.
1: Come on, you're having a senior moment or what?
2: No, it's Saturday, April 6th, but I'm going to give you the address because I realized that I have the address right here. It's at 7311 Northwest 36th Street. 7311 Northwest 36th Street, Americans for Prosperity and Turning Point USA school choice event from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. There you go. That that's a good. You you might want to go to that. You I'm know I want to be there. You oh.
1: know I don't leave the key, man. You don't I, leave the key. <laughs> what's there in Miami that I'm missing out? This is in Doral. <laughs> yeah, what, what am School I missing choice. in
2: Doral? You know, Turning they, Point USA. They're not.
1: They don't care less about me. I got the nuclear option. I'm the one who put my my skin out there and my daughter's skin out there. And, so uh, how
2: is the drive? So pay
1: respect and tell the story. Don't ask me to go there unless I'm the guest speaker, so I can all bomb right. them so all. So
2: how is the uh, parent guardianship uh, act going here well, in Florida? Well,
1: quite frankly, the 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 House member that I um, um, have not been able to reach, his name is Jason Fisher.
2: Where's he from? What
1: he's just in the area of, I would say Jacksonville area. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the district's no, the the number in the district, and the senator is also from the Jacksonville area. His name is Hudson, and I uh, sent messages. I was able to speak to his assistant, Mister. Coltite,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I sent him the the website of my experience, and and guess what? What
2: That's happened? That's what. It's not. It's not moving.
1: It's called dead silence.
2: Oh. Uh stagnation.
1: Yeah, it's no, that's stagnation. Stagnation implies it's it's a slow moving process. No, I'm talking about dead air. Really. Just like that see? Like the the cancer of radio, dead air. Zzz, zzz. People don't get it. They want to really cut around the edges. And guess what? Every day every day that I am not getting headway is a mm-hmm. day closer to more Ocasio Cortez is being right, elected.
2: Right, more socialists.
1: If you can't stop, Bernie this, is the
2: leading candidate among millennials. Remember, millennials. young
1: people, as hard as and competitive as our workplace and work environment is going to be for the next twenty years, these kids that are right now are not, not not eligible for employment are looking down at their phone. When they finally look up and realize, "Oh my God, I can't get a job through the phone," they're going to say, "Oh, it's too late to be conservative because." Uh, Bernie Sanders just wrote him a check. And guess what? They're going to do what the Puerto Ricans do. What's they're going to corral the post office box at government housing facilities over in the quad, what they call the quad. They just wait for the postman to come with a welfare check. Oh, really? And he just drops the bag in the middle of the quad, and they all run to the bag and tear it apart. And everybody starts distributing the checks to each other. They read the, the labels out loud and the and them Mailman just waits to have the bag returned to him when the, all the envelopes are taken out. And that's all over New Jersey, all over New York, all over Chicago, all over uh, Boston. Hispanics receiving checks and mm-hmm. just going home. And, yeah, it adds to the economy, I guess. No, Pelosi, no,
2: no, no. It's not good to have all these.
1: That's what Pelosi told me that as, the more welfare right. checks out there, <clears throat> it's a stimulus to the economy. No, no, no. Because no. they'll buy with it. Well, if that's the America that we want, then, you know, let's shut down this operation and blink once. I said it. Blink twice. You missed it. And guess what? Ed is back with his finger in the hot bowl of chili, spinning it around saying I should go back to rock and roll. I'm not going to. It's 6 o'clock, 6.05, 6.03. What time do you have?
2: We have a caller at 6.05.
1: Well, I, I, I'm a little fast. You know me. I, I drink coffee. I move fast. I do things quickly. I act with urgency. And I'm with Slowpoke Ed Vidal. Ed, I still got to give you a nickname for the radio. You've <laughs> you've you've vetoed all your names, you know. Katrina already bought into this Eduardo thing, so we can't no, use that. No, she calls me Ed. She calls you Ed. You're so gringo, it's not even funny. Well, that's okay. I, I want to be gringo when I feel like it, and I like to be American Cuban when I feel like it. And there's nothing I can do about the fact that I'd rather have a medianoche than a Big Mac, but it is what it is. There's nothing I can a do. A media
2: noche is a little bit sweet on the bread, so I like the Cuban sandwich straight.
1: Cuban sandwich? Yeah. yeah I, I, I That's a good second place, but meia noche is noche. Have you been to a Sandwich, by the way, on A Street? No, where is it? Wow, man. It's 14th and 8th?
2: 14th and 8th. You okay. gotta
1: go What's there. What's it called? Sandwich. In other words, the English word for sandwich, mm-hmm. but Cuban style, Cuban lingo, sandwich. Sandwich. Well,
2: uh, uh, we've been to the Azucar ice cream shop whenever we have friends. Oh, in
1: Domino Park.
2: Yes, and they have uh, <clears throat> uh, a go to hell Fidel flavor. It's, it's a chocolate with cayenne pepper, which is really hot.
1: Oh, that's Havana ice cream. Very, but with a B, Habana, like Habana mm-hmm. peppers. And you like you like uh, spicy ice cream?
2: Well, no, but this is worth eating.
1: <laughs> I thought it was going to taste like manure.
2: No, no, no! It was go to Hell Fidel. Good. Yeah, it was hot. Good.
1: It was it makes sense. Go to Hell, hot. Oh, hot. That's cute.
2: Yep, that's good.
1: I don't think I would order it though.
2: <laughs> you say 14th and 8th.
1: 14th and 8th. Yes.
2: Okay, because we're gonna have friend, uh kids visiting around Easter, so I'm gonna take them there.
1: Oh man, it is over the top.
2: And then go for the cigars, at Bro- El Titan de Bronce.
1: At Titan de Bronces, which is 12th and 8th, I believe. No, can't be 12th because that's Ronald Reagan Avenue. Gotta be literally the next block over. So it's yeah, probably thirteenth oh, Okay. Thirteenth and eighth. And sandwich is fourteenth and eighth. And um yeah, Titan get their, their you know who's signed up with Titan to roll his cigars? Padilla. Padilla's been uh doing oh Padilla cigars. Oh, okay. Padilla's uh he's been here in the studio and Neto Padilla. Right. His father was one of the first uh literary revolutionary poets put in jail During Castro's reign, he had the honor, see, and he wanted me to go to music. You know what? We made it. We made it here. WSQF, the Concrete Conservative. Yes, this is the Concrete Conservative, 94.5 FM. You're live on the air. And who do I expect to hear from today?
3: Uh, Hi, this is Gary Hoover. How are you, Max?
1: How are you? Nice to meet you. Hi, Gary. Same here,
3: same here. Hey, Ed. How you doing? Thanks gonna for le- calling.
1: We're going to let Ed give you a bunch of questions first, because he knows that I'm dying to talk to you, but i I got to give him, i got to see to, you know, age before beauty kind of situation yes, well,
2: here.
3: Yeah, oh, well, Gary. Feeling. Yep.
2: Thank Go ahead, for, Ed, take you, over. Thank you for calling. We wanted to hear your get your take, uh, but first you should tell our audience about your background, and then you should tell us about your take on entrepreneurship. And Manny in particular wants to know, about how my, uh, Dade County surpassed Travis County as having the most startups last year. But why don't you tell us about yourself i I'm first. more interested
1: in uh, how did Travis County even get on the list. That's yeah, what I no, want to... they're very entrepreneurial Unbelievable! There. I would have never known. All right, go ahead.
3: <laughs> okay. Uh, well, let's see. My name's Gary Hoover. I live in beautiful
1: Flatonia, Texas. Yeah. i an hour outside of
3: Austin. I lived in Austin for 35 years.
1: Is it Flatonia because of the landscape or because of the women?
3: Uh it's it's named that after the Flato or Flato family who helped found the town.
1: So oh, okay.
3: It's gently rolling. Uh, <laughs> uh so Gently it's
1: not, rolling, okay, I'll go with that.
3: Yep. And uh let's see, I grew up outside of Indianapolis. I grew up in a General Motors factory town. Uh, GM had twenty seven thousand employees in a town of sixty thousand people, Anderson, Indiana and nobody in school could answer my questions about General Motors. They were teaching about leadership by uh, generals and colonels and presidents and kings and queens. And I said, well, what about the leaders of General Motors? They're pretty important in this town, and nobody could tell me anything. So at the age of 12, I began subscribing to Fortune magazine and became interested in business and that interest hasn't uh, abated since 1963 when my subscription began. And I now live in a library with 57,000 books, including virtually all the fortunes back this beginning in 1930. I went to the University of Chicago studying under Milton Friedman and George Stigler and some of those fellows. I worked a couple of years on Wall Street as a stock analyst covering retailing, because I fell in love with retailing soon after I fell in love with business. Uh, Then I worked for uh, two big department store companies for seven years to really learn the trade, and finally in 1982, picked Austin as the best place in America to start my first company, which was called Bookstop, and uh, it was the first chain of uh, large bookstores uh, modeled after Toys R Us, a huge selection and low prices. And we built stores from Miami to San Diego over the next seven years. and. Really, I have to say, changed change the industry. The average bookstore did about a half million a year in sales, and we were averaging $3 million a store. And at that point, the venture was fired me and sold it to Barnes & Noble, which has done a great job. That's how they really got into the big bookstore business. Well, After that, I uh, completely...
1: Wait a second here. You, were the seed? you were the They tried to bury you and then realize you were a seed? No, no,
2: no. But, you know, Gary, this weekend I went to uh, Books and Books, one of the leading I- independent Great bookstores here. And I think the way they've been able to survive and really thrive is they have a lot of readings. Like they had Art Shamsky, who played for the 69 Mets. He's written a new book. So he was there giving a little talk. And there were, you know, like 30, 40 people, mostly retired Mets fans, right, who remembered 1969. And the place was filled. Uh, and then they also had a, a cafe and uh, all sorts of things. So it's it's interesting how you can have you have on the one hand you had the the Barnes and Noble mega bookstores like you had, and I think you had one of your biggest bookstores down here in South Miami. Yeah, uh, yep. near
3: Dadeland Mall.
2: Yep, yep, that's where we lived near there. But then uh, at the same time, there's room for these independent bookstores.
3: Yeah, the industry, you know, it really uh, took a hit between the rise of Borders, which is no longer with us, and with uh, Barnes and Noble. Uh, and, and our company, but the good independents uh, always did well. And then Amazon came along, and that was another big hit. And people forget that even before those, B. Dalton and Walden books had covered the country. Mm-hmm. So the weaker independents uh, have always had a tough time. But the great ones, which there are several, the best bookstore in America is called PALS in Portland, Oregon. Yes, another we've great been one there. Had cover in Denver. Yep. Uh, they've done well. And there's a big independent in Austin called Book People. Um, and those and this, those stores have been growing and doing well. It's been widely reported. Uh, sales of print books have been growing faster than e-books and uh, electronic books for the last several years. So. Uh, the printed word is uh, is coming back and, and uh, doing pretty well. And, and yeah, our stores, Barnes & Noble, they've always had lots of autographings, a reasonable amount of readings and so on. There's a big store out on Long Island that I haven't seen. I forget its name, but it does a huge number of events. You always see great gut felt going out there mm-hmm. and everything. Um and uh, so no, that's a real tradition. And and books and books is just a wonderful store. It was one of the first ones I visited when we decided to enter Miami. And I've been back there and uh, bought a lot of books from them. They have a their Coral Gables store is really a beauty and yep. it has a wonderful art and architecture section.
2: Yeah, and they're all over. They're at the airport. They're in Ball Harbour. They're in uh, near the art center uh, at downtown. They're they're really well run. They run the bookstop for the Coral Gables Museum next door, so it's a it's a real cultural center and it's a good place to go meet people. Like I met the uh, the president of the South Florida Saber Matrician Society, Society of American Baseball Research, at oh, this yeah. at this event. And you know that's the sort of thing you go to these events, and it's not just for the for the author, but also the people that are there are pretty interesting people too. Well, uh, uh,
1: the most of the most intelligent people on the planet are always reading a book. They're you ask a person um like I do this in the dating game, you know what book are you reading now and if they don't if they're not reading a book, I know I not, know that' not
2: up to your standards,
1: no, not necessarily <laughs> because my mom was a real bookworm, she always insisted on us uh reading and all and i I started reading uh after she fell into uh dementia and Alzheimer's. It was a way of me finally listening to my mom. I was very saddened by that, but I uh, could never. Um, really match her, but she was always giving us books. And that's the key to education, which is the question I wanted to ask you. Uh, When people like yourself are so involved in the book world and um, into selling books and distributing books, first of all, you, you really have faith in the market that's still around wanting to open up a book and actually read it as opposed to reading it online or on their Kindle or something like that. So that's really important in our society and I think that's the only thing that's missing in our schools why are we messing around with so much curriculum based stuff and textbooks when in fact students just need to read and read quickly and read fast so that they can get through school and then find school to be entertaining and exciting look forward to it I believe most kids find schooling so boring is simply because of the teacher reading uh, making them read textbooks when in fact, they just read books about science, books well, about humanity. It's
2: always better to read primary sources, yes. Yes,
1: primary sources throughout your high school age. And I remember my son had to read Harry Potter just to be able to play baseball in the afternoon and uh, in the Cory Leagues. And he read all the Potter books by the time he was 12. So those are 700-page books. And mm-hmm. today he's an attorney because he was able to read right through college. And, you know, you fall behind because you don't read So I want to know why people in your industry don't have a PAC, a political action committee, forcing book reading and speed reading down kids' throats in the public school system in all 50 states. That was my big question. Why is that? Uh,
4: Yeah, uh, yeah. well, I
3: haven't been in the industry since uh, 1989, but I've been an an author, a publisher, a bookseller, and a... um, Uh, Above all else, a book collector. And my latest book, it's on Amazon, is called The uh, Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning. So it lists my 160 favorite books. So I certainly personally advocate for it. The one thing that we always did, and uh, I think the bookselling industry and the publishing industry still do, is back uh, literacy programs. And the only two things where all booksellers agree are literacy and anti-censorship. And we were always fighting those, and and the trade associations and everything worked on those. I saw Dolly Parton has a program. She's given away over 100 million books to uh, young people, uh, especially families that couldn't afford them. And uh, it's now in all 50 states. She started it in either Tennessee or North Carolina. I think Tennessee, where she's from. And um, so there are a lot of people uh, working to do that. As far as schools and getting through the curriculum thing and fighting the... um, the committees that pick the textbooks i, I know that uh, for example the texas state legislature uh, passed a rule that the economics books here for high school economics had to include some references to uh, free market capitalism why
1: some not and, all
3: and and then i i so i ordered the the standard textbook that's used in all the uh, courses down here in high school economics, and I got it, and and it's Texas edition because the big textbook publishers, you know, a big market like yeah
1: that. yeah you all de- you all determine what the rest of the states get in textbooks. Once your contract is signed away, all everybody else's textbooks are just uh, basically cut and paste of the Texas uh, contract.
3: Well, uh, maybe, but when I looked at that book, after the legislature passed the, the rule, what I found was very, I forget, if it was in the appendix or the footnotes or somewhere, There was like one paragraph referencing Hayek and von Mises or something like that, but it was like, you know, they rare. really just threw a bone to the to the thing, and, and but the publisher had to make a separate edition for that, and uh, it's it's a weird business, and the, and the textbooks you know are losing out to electronic textbooks, and uh, you know all of publishing's kind of in turmoil, as is, are all the media industries, uh, film and television, and everybody with the rise of uh, the digital era. But I'm glad to see paper books doing better than uh, e-books and Kindles and all that jazz.
2: Yeah, I think there's definitely been research that, for example, even if you're reading something, reading a contract, if you read it on paper, you're going to retain and understand more than if you just read it on the screen.
3: Yes, absolutely. I'm engaged with the Graduate School of Information at the University of Texas at Austin. And our, uh, one of our professors, he was dean for 12 years, he often speaks about that and how you consume they process information differently when you take it off of a printed page. So yeah, yeah there absolutely is research along those lines.
1: Okay, I got this cool uh, exam for you. I wrote a book called The Fiscals. It's on uh, a, a, an ebook. Basically, it's on a it's free on the web, and Ed won't read it because it's not in paperback yet. So
3: I'm with Ed on that. Yeah, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have any uh, Kindle or anything like that. They're good for all right, people. People that travel all the time. That. One of my friends loves books, but he uh, travels all the time, so now he can take 20 books on the airplane with him. So I understand the convenience of it, but it's just not that hard to put it into print, especially with the Amazon uh, Create Space service. Uh, you don't have to put up any money; you get that book in, on Amazon. They print them when they get an order, and you get a check every month. So. There you
1: go, Manny. That's what you got to do. And, well, my, problem is yeah. the pr- my problem is uh, proofreading. I've had a terrible time. With editors trying to change my book instead of just fixing my typos, and that's no,
2: what, and me <laughs> yeah, it,
1: yeah, he only both. Yeah, it's pretty.
2: He plays self publisher. I sent you his.
1: Yeah, book. so I'm. I found someone who claims to uh, want to read my book and want to proofread. I've spent about five thousand dollars on different types of editors, and each one has taken about a hundred pages off the book. And uh, the book is uh, a reinvention book: reinvent the United States by affect, not effect. So it's called The Fiscals, and I really want to reinvent the country in terms of these ideas that we want to fix about our country that really don't require reform at this point because reform is just a very liberal way of adding money to something that's in its premise is flawed. So you can throw all the money you want at a public school system, but it's not going to fix itself it's, no matter what you do. So I'd rather reinvent it. And uh, so I have a, at the end, there's something, a chapter called The entries Exam to see if you are qualified to be one of the Fiscals, correct? And the Fiscals is uh, an imaginary uh, political action committee that uh, all fights to reinvent the country. So while you're reading my book, you're kind of asking yourself if you are worthy of joining us, you know? So um, I wrote a list of uh caught my attention. The reason why I'm talking to you in this manner is that I want to read some of the books that I put in my list of, of books to read uh, in order to become a fiscal, well, compared
2: with uh, Gary's, I've said Well, that Gary's
1: that. has so many books. I just want you to give me an idea without having read my book. Just flat out, you can free to say malarkey, ridiculous, uh, waste of time. Because these are the books that I found very Im- impactful in my uh, quest to reinvent the United States. So, um, I I coined a phrase called the progressive virus, which I be- felt was a computer. Uh, scratched hard drive of a liberal who repeats uh, false premises to get people to automatically think the government's going to do something for it that it never achieves and f- creates more problems in, in mitigation uh, an unanswered grievance than ever before. So then when it originally started, so it's called the progressive virus. So to understand the progressive virus, I have these books and, and there's a different uh, there's a different section for every one of these books. So uh, understanding the progressive i got the propaganda by edward bernays i've got the marketing of evil by david kapilian how evil works by david kapilian the road to serfdom by uh That's frederick a good one. by frederick Hayek. the new road to serfdom by daniel Hannum, which is a he's a british li- uh, legislature yeah. mm-hmm. and a gentleman who was involved in, the, in Netanyahu's in natanyahu's campaign a book a very simple book to read called under dogma by michael Prell then to understand uh, intuitive failure and the intuitive failure of self-reliance, which is how liberals destroyed self-reliance in this country by the way that they taught us. I have The Creature from Jekyll Island by Edward Griffin, The Battle of No, Now, Britain. that's
2: on the start of the Federal Reserve. Right. That's a good book.
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, the Battle of Bretton Woods, which is also the same, by Ben Stale. The ominous Parallels by uh, Leonard uh, Perkoff. The Roosevelt Care uh, by Dan Watkins, <clears throat> Freakonomics by Steve Levitt, The Objectivist—that's uh, this is a word I always had difficult pronouncing—Epistemology by N. Rand, and Hermogen by a guy named Bill Bonner. Are, are any of these books books that you've uh, read or interested in reading, or do you find them to be inconsequential? Oh
3: boy, I know maybe a third of those books. I mean, I certainly know Hayek and Rand. Yes. Um, uh, and, yeah, those know, are the
1: classics. Yeah. And Jackal yeah, Island. You know,
3: those are all important. Mm-hmm. You know, Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson, Milton Friedman's uh, free to choose and capitalism and freedom. Um, there are so many books, and in my book, I reference a few uh, economics books. Uh, but um, and I've heard of uh, some of the other authors, pickoff and some of those other people that you've mentioned that I have not examine those in depth. I actually met Von Mises back in the uh, in the 70s at a wow. FEE conference, Foundation for Economic Education, which is a great outfit that does a lot of good work.
2: Yeah, we had Larry Reed, who was just retired as president, uh, uh, calling in last year.
1: Yeah, for oh, feet. great. Oh, yeah, Seadog yeah, yeah, yes. they,
2: they were in Terrytown, New York, where we lived about 20 minutes away in Scarsdale, but then about 10 years ago, they moved to uh, Atlanta. And I talked to Larry. He said they cost, They cut their operating costs by 50%. Yeah,
3: no, I've, uh, I'm speaking at a uh, – or on a panel uh, at their conference coming up this spring in Atlanta. I visited the headquarters. Great. But, yeah, it was up by Terrytown where I met Von Mises at yep. a, uh, uh, a one-week summer program that one of my professors at the University of Chicago uh, sent me off to. Yeah,
2: both my kids went to those uh – Charlie and Ingrid, they were because we we're only twenty minutes away. They had those uh, uh, seminars uh, during the summer where they would stay over there for a week and read up and stuff. That's
3: yeah. that's what I went to. I yep. would have gone to it in about nineteen seventy one, give or take. But uh, yeah, and all those beautiful mansions that were built by the robber barons. And yep. my my main focus these days is on teaching and preaching and promoting the lessons of business history, so I write online on my website, Hoover's World. You'll find...
1: Yeah, repeat uh, that to our audience. What's the, the
3: to what's the website again?
2: What's the website?
3: You can go to hooversworld.com and see them, and they're they're originally published by a great organization called the Archbridge Institute uh Washington, a small think tank that's focused uh, on... Um, Economic mobility in America. The uh, founder, Gonzalo Schwartz, thinks we've uh, way over focused on uh, inequality when we should instead be focused on how do people rise up. And he's a big believer in uh, free markets and uh, free minds, as Reason Magazine says. And uh, so that's um, where these biographies are originally published.
2: What's so, his name? Uh, what's what's Archbridge again?
3: BridgeInstitute.org. It's their website, and then I later republish him on my website, Hoover's World.
2: What's his name, Gonzalo?
3: What? Gonzalo Schwartz. S C H W A R Z.
2: Hispanic Jew. All right, good.
3: Uh, it's a good outfit. Yeah, and they work closely with uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. Right. Yeah. We'll be down there in Atlanta together. That's great. Are you
1: familiar with uh, the the Leipzig connection in the in the early days of public education? How... Uh, no, I'm not. Apparently. Um, uh, a group of experimental psychologists and psychoanalysts from Nazi Germany before Nazi Nazism became the reign of terror. There was a, a group of psychoanalysts that were basically recruited to the University of Chicago when, um, what's his name, uh, Rockefeller? No, no, John Dewey. You keep on saying Dewey, man. Dewey's yeah. after Rockefeller's money. Okay. okay. Rockefeller puts up the money for University of Chicago to create yep. the first teacher's college, and he keeps on saying Dewey created no. the first teacher. The college. The teacher's
2: college is at Columbia University. But
1: that was over eight years after John. Okay, could Everybody be. Discuss discussed this. Oh, my God. So the money came first, usually, and then the evolution comes later. Right. The money's there for you to use. Well, anyway, the Leipzig connection was something that a lot of educators <laughs> don't want to uh, pinpoint why our kids are HDHD and uh, unfocused, and why, and uh, uh, and maybe not you and Ed. Um, since I'm a young pup at 54, I know that I'm affected by what I'm about to say, because people don't want to acknowledge the fact that the multiple choice exam is what has us this way. We don't really uh, have the curiosity and the intent to find an answer to something because we were taught through a multiple-choice exam, to settle for the best of three answers or the best of five answers, or if there is no answer, the all of the above or the A and the C or the B and the, and the D. But it's the, it's the way we were taught that has killed curiosity. And that's where the real intellects, uh, the evolution of intellect, is being curious to find the answers. And the only people who have been able to safeguard against the, the multiple-choice exams are basically people who studied math. And people who studied engineering, where you have to be curious because, you know, you can overcome the multiple choice exam if you're in the world of well, engineering. And in
2: law, you have to uh, write essays. Never, never,
1: S- never, never, never in your wildest essays. dreams. He's, you know, he knows that I have a pet peeve about attorneys, and I I find them to be the the most, you know, hideous among us. Uh, you're not an attorney, right? Promise me. I didn't insult two people at no. once. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so you're on my side for these next one minute or two.
3: But I just pulled up a PDF about the Leipzig connection it looks very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's uh it was really disgusting how they started experimenting with us children in order to create a a bunch of insidious institutional education programs that end up becoming the first teachers in America and they use guess who they use the the southern sharecroppers children. They were, with the excuse that they were going to build them new schools.
2: Uh, Julius Rosenwald may have been one of those builders, right, Gary? Yeah,
3: Yeah, Rosenwald built over 3,000 schools for poor blacks in the South. Uh, There are whole books about that. Uh, Well,
1: I hope you'll see the connection there.
3: um, Approach to education. Right. I could find out.
1: Yes, and they basically created robotic institutional structures where the only thing you're really good at when you got out of public schools for about 50 years was to go into a factory and settle for uh, a middle class. Maybe that's what they were trying to train. That's exactly what they were trying to do. Rockefeller had the factories. Of course he was trying to train. He was basically creating a bunch of minions because he knew that among his social class all the innovators were going to come from and all the entrepreneurs were going to come from. They were going to be the the, the the friends of his children and the friends of his peer group. So he basically institutionalized public education in a manner where he created the, the General Education Fund. And he put, uh, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he was uh, good friends with Woodrow Wilson.
2: John Dewey, was that the guy? Would you
1: no. keep on doing that oh, to Colonel me? Colonel House. Uh... You know what? It could have been house. Anyway, uh, this this
3: piece that I found online about the Leipzig connection talks extensively about John Dewey's role and all that.
1: Well, uh, you didn't have to say that live. Could you have said that like later?
2: No, no, that's all right.
1: Because he keeps on taking, he keeps on uh, obsessing with John Dewey's involvement. And I, in my book, I just talk about the pre, predip- you know, not the prelude, not the climax, but the origins of institutionalized assembly line schooling. Where you just push kids through based on age, not based on intellect. In other words, we were wrong in educating uh, educating our kids first through sixth grade based on age. It should have been uh, based on aptitudes. And if it if it meant different ages, so be it. But uh, kids of the same yeah, you, aptitude you, should you, have been studying you together. Go
2: as you learn. You you keep growing as you learn, regardless yeah, but, of your age.
1: Right, because of your age, and that's an assembly line. Uh, philosophy like you're going to go to sixth grade no matter what and kids are obviously i remember when i repeated first grade so i'm like the perfect person to talk about this i didn't like being uh always uh behind my the you know the kids my age were always a grade ahead of me so it's kind of like a stigma uh, the fact that i repeated i kind of carried that stigma throughout my schooling Mm because it was all age-based and I yeah, think they really failed us. It shouldn't
2: be based It should be just performance-based. aptitude based yeah, aptu-
3: yeah. well, for, for what it's worth, I can say four years at the University of Chicago. I don't remember a single multiple-choice test, but I do remember ones where the teachers prided themselves that they hadn't given an A in four or five years, and there was a, another test that I believe had a 70% failure rate in the uh, Master's of Economics. Uh,
1: <laughs> and, no, and no curves.
2: Yeah, that's because they, they wanted no to weed out who could go for the PhD. Yep, yep. Yeah. And, the, and well,
1: uh, when do you think that was all lost, because back in... Uh, oh,
3: I don't think it's been lost. Not there.
1: Not at Chicago. So University of it's Chicago continues being the hammer and the nail. It's they a hammer,
3: a yeah. tough place. They had to raise the grades a bit, because all these students in my era were coming out, and they would go to law school or med school and they have a, a one-point lower grade average they'd have a 3 against a 4 the kids coming out of harvard but then they always tested higher than the harvard kids on the lsat and the gmat and all that jazz and they, which are they, multiple they, they, choice tests they, they, right you know and so the university did lift the uh the grading a bit
1: okay, okay but that that almost makes my case for mm-hmm. me because you all didn't have a multiple choice exam, but and we yet you excelled. Got, yeah, yeah. Then you excelled at a multiple choice exam at the, on the that, LSAT. That's
2: true. That happened to me with the when I went, applied to law school from Chicago. That I had very high
1: LSATs. See, so imagine if you apply this theorem that I've come up with in my there head as a flunky, and you apply it to primary school and high school. Right.
2: Well, before we let you go, Gary, we got one more question for you. Okay. Why does Dade County have more? Startup entrepreneurs than Travis County,
3: Texas. Well, I, you know, I didn't have a chance to look that up and see uh, 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 see the report. Um, All I can say is that's great for Dade County. What's the population of Dade County?
2: Well, I think it's about the same as as Travis County, and this is the Kaufman Foundation, which yeah, does research.
3: Yeah, I did good work. I,
2: I, uh, Manny we're about, I, we're about yeah, three million. Yeah, Manny and I talked about it, and I think the, the yeah
3: no Travis County yeah. is uh, more like a million.
2: All right, well that could but be, but a little over a million. Even with the same number, um, Dade County has a lot of Hispanic entrepreneur immigrants who are very entrepreneurial, and yeah. it doesn't have a lot of corporate. Uh, jobs, corporate headquarters, yeah. corporate employment. So
1: we only have the airport and the school system that right. employing so, a lot of people.
2: Uh, big, big employer. You know, uh, Carnival Cruise Lines, and Th- uh, that's about you, you know. There aren't too many corporate uh, writer. There aren't too many major corporate headquarters here. Yep. So what yep. you have is a lot of people to start their own companies, and there's a lot of small and medium sized There are a lot of startups, but what I've heard from the uh, uh, entrepreneurial community and the venture capitalists is that people don't scale up, and the my answer to them is they don't scale up because they didn't build it to scale it. They built it to keep, keep themselves and their families employed. So that's the difference.
1: Well, uh, we also have the benefit of depending on how these studies were taken. Do they go back as uh, startups? No, no,
2: it's just every year, every uh, just year, yearly. yeah, every year, yeah. So
1: in 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 the case of Miami, yearly. I would say it's uh, the you have to give credit to the Venezuelan immigration.
2: Yeah, every time there's a wave of immigration, there's that a new affluent. wave of uh, yeah. There's a new wave of uh, you know laundry and dry cleaners, franchises. No, it, but so I, I, your, your, startups
1: could also yeah. be anything. These, car dealers, th- these car... computer operators, software yes, companies. Yes. Because a lot of affluent <laughs> Venezuelans came to Miami-Dade County this last year, uh, sure. same, just like the, the the cream of the crop of Cuba came out in sixty through sixty-six. The best of Cuba came out of Cuba, yeah, and I the best of Venezuela Texas. is coming out of yeah. Venezuela.
2: So they're starting a lot of new companies. There's a company called Gaming Frog, which is um, it, it hooks you up to a game of skill, not chance, and you can bet on yourself. And that was founded by immigrants from Colombia, just a young guys, 29 years old. Uh, I and... teach
3: down in Colombia. There's so much going on down yep. there. I have long called Miami the New York of South America. Yep. You know it really That's very well the said. Center yeah. Center for South America.
2: But now you know, uh, Austin is getting a lot of the big corporate headquarters. Apple is building a big corporate headquarters. All sorts of uh, big corporates well, are going
3: Well, we don't have many true headquarters. We have a lot of branch offices. You know, okay. Dell uh, right. is our biggest locally-based company. Whole Foods was strong, but now they're part of Amazon. But the thing is they're all setting up their tech centers here. The right. U.S. Army has done that. Walmart, Home Depot, General Motors company after company because we have such a, a big uh, uh the right labor force for all those people it's just a great place for um tech millennials people that can come right out of college and make six figures it's become a haven for them and it really is a great city in so many ways and uh so that's just going to continue, and then that'll bring more employers. I mean, Oracle built a huge campus. Amazon is adding 800 jobs here, and uh, those aren't distribution center jobs. And like you mentioned, Apple's spending over a billion dollars. So Austin's really on a roll. But but overall, entrepreneurship in America, which I've seen evolve a lot since I got into it in '82. When I got here, it was hard to find lawyers or accountants who even understood how you did a startup and how you dealt with blue sky laws and all that. Oh, please, don't
1: give credit to the attorneys for startups.
3: But it spread all over the country because you see Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Paducah, Kentucky, and uh, Little Rock, and Nashville is happening. Denver, Jacksonville showed up on a list of one of the hotbeds of entrepreneurship. So it's really... um, spread out around the country, and uh, while Austin is a lot cheaper than Brooklyn or San Francisco, it's a lot more expensive place to be than, say, uh, uh, Houston or Little Rock or Nashville or a lot of these other places, so I think you'll continue to see uh, entrepreneurial thinking and and the skills, the infrastructure, the lawyers, accountants, and all that become more distributed around the nation.
1: Well, you know, we're going to end our interview here, I think it's awesome. that we finally can get to the bottom of what's ailing us in America, the lack of ability to read and read quickly. We've got to get more people reading and reading fast. I'll send
2: you more will, on the live I will,
3: light I will say, I read my book. I, I rarely spend more than 15 to 30 minutes with a book, but I never speed read. And uh, I think that's a very risky thing. I'm an incredibly slow reader. But I have a method. It's the most downloaded thing off my website, and it's also in my book, uh, where I go incredibly slowly, but I remember and understand all the key ideas in the book.
1: Okay, and you, what would you say to our listeners? How many how, how many pages you would read in a sitting?
3: Oh boy, I have a relatively short attention span, uh, so and it depends highly on the book. Uh, so like a textbook in an hour, I might do four pages, five pages. In a book about business, I might do 12 to 20. If it's Peter Drucker, his is denser. I would go much more slowly. Uh, but it's not about reading pages. I don't read sequentially.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the, uh, I have an, uh, I must say, I have an attorney, friend of mine, who reads a lot about, uh, you know, books about our history and i don't think he's at the i don't think he's at the the, the he also lives in a basically in a library and he says he he stops at 10 pages every night every night he reads 10 pages of whatever book he happens to have and he just orders books and reads and it's 10 pages and i i find that doable until i try it myself and I, and my eyes are burning at 4 pages <laughs> So thank you very much Everybody, for the
3: call. Method. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank yeah, you, Gary.
1: You bet. We'll be calling you again.
3: Okay. Carry take, on. Bye-bye.
1: Take care. Yeah, so as you can see, readers out there, you know, four, ten pages, four to ten. You just just do it every day as a discipline. Could this be Tamara?
2: No, this is probably John Lofgren from Central Florida, another avid reader.
1: This is WSQF ninety four point five, the concrete conservative. Who are you,
3: John Wolfgren.
1: I had a feeling, not I. I didn't have a feeling at all. It was just, you know, I could see Ed's happy face. You know, John's calling and he gets his happy face on because you know he's the aura, the aura surrounded him. Huh? Yeah, it's you know he's the one pushing the. Oh. The Tribune articles that you write to everyone, so he's your biggest promoter. Uh, Tea Party Tribune.
4: Well, that's really cool. Thanks so much. Thanks.
1: Yeah, you really nail it. You really nail it. You got to elaborate on on the donation uh, the donation to gift ratio between politicians well, and we industry.
2: Should, we should tell our audience. Why don't you, John? Why don't you give us a little thumbnail sketch on your background for our audience?
4: Oh, so, uh, my name is John Lopgren. I'm an engineer by trade for most of my life. I got five patents. And uh, when I was in industry, I helped write some you know, design manuals, some best practices, and I kind of applied that to politics when I got out and ended up uh, you know, coming up with a book of kind of best practices in government and you know, what's dysfunctional and why we got here.
1: And it's called Atlas Shouts. Yes.
4: Atlas Shouts. It's uh, almost five stars on Amazon these days, so uh, check it out.
1: That's great. And you've, you've
2: been writing some great uh, articles in the Tea Party Tribune. And the other one was about last one that we wanted to have you talk to us about was campaign contributions are ruining America. So why don't you tell us about that?
4: Yeah, it's really a really kind of an interesting uh, uh, ironic uh, uh, contradiction that I found as I looked into campaign finances, I was kind of amazed that uh, the, the first thing that caught my eye was how liberals make such uh, much uh, uh, you know much angst and anger directed toward campaign contributions. Those are just ruining America. So I started asking the liberals, you know, if, if people don't, if uh, uh, companies donating to politicians are ruining those politicians, why isn't government money being given away for welfare and all other benefit programs? Why doesn't that ruin the same people? You know, when they're giving these people a full salary. Yeah, what's well, you know, vote buying? It's not just a contribution, but a full salary, a year's worth of living. Don't you think that makes people different as well? And then they didn't want to talk about it anymore after that.
2: Well that's vote buying and I was, on my uh, way here I was reading about listening to NPR of course I was listening to them complain that the Trump administration has tried to put work requirements on food stamps how oh, dare he is. And oh, they they're all complaining but it seems to me that if you're on food stamps consistently not just you know in a, an emergency over a year if you're consistently on food stamps you shouldn't have the right to vote either
1: cuz you don't no, have absolutely. you're not an impartial absolutely. you know it's
4: representation p- without uh without taxation right
1: yeah, well, definitely a conflict of interest, voter. I mean, if you're going to vote to keep your food stamps, then you you have a conflict. You're not going to vote for the benefit of the country. You're going to vote for the benefit of yourself. And I think that's how the Democratic Party wins. Period. That's
2: it. They need a. a if
4: you, you know, everybody gets uh, understands the you know the metaphor of the uh, the used salesman and how he's just so motivated to get every dollar out of your pocket and give you that card that's not so good, and then. And then you go look at what what happens with government and them giving away this money and stuff, and and why aren't those people greedy too? You know that it. I found that as little as people thought of one politician would get them as little as maybe five hundred or a thousand dollars a year more, and like a tax break or or a benefit. You know, more medical care. You know, what just something five hundred to a thousand dollars a year was enough to make the average voter change their mind, and say I'm going to vote for that party because that's going to be the most. Uh, uh beneficial for me in the short term
1: that must so have I really
4: been at short term benefit
1: that must that's be a, really extreme when they're retirees protecting their social security payments and their Medicare
4: yeah, oh, oh, yeah, absolutely, they're totally dependent, yeah, so all of those now you promise, okay, I'm going to make your social security go up, you know just just fifty bucks a month but that's six hundred a year. I mean they do the math on that pretty quick, and the next thing you know they say uh I'm, I'm voting for that candidate he's going to protect my social security to hell with anything else he stands for whether he wants to put transvestites in the bathroom or you know conduct fake racism hoaxes in all the cities across America with fake you know uh,
1: small and that's fake. called you're being smoletted <laughs> oh yeah. yeah that's good we got to find yeah. a name we get you're being smode. you're being smoletted that's yep. got to be that's got to be a new word now now that smolet
4: fake, man it should be it should be all right. if you go back and look at all you know, one of my articles in there also is a, a, a short list of uh, race baiting ho- hoaxes, and I've got a list of like the ten major racist events that you we all grew up with, you know, stuff that started in the 80s with Tawana Brawley, and then we had Matthew Shepard, you know, and yep. all these hate crimes were going on, and I went back and looked at all the big ones, and every one of them has a big old fat lie right in the middle of it. It turns out uh, that Shepard kid that was killed in Montana, that he was supposed to be Killed by gay, uh, yep. I mean, by gay-hating cowboy guys, right? Yeah. Turns out it was a, there was a actually a love triangle going on, and, and a bunch of uh, crystal meth involved. Drug it was, deals, it was right? Kind of a, uh, it was a drug killing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was a drug crazy, deal.
4: Praise drug killing, not drug not deal
2: a,
1: gone a, bad. Gay, not and, a gay hate thing. And, yeah. uh, and you, uh, a love a triangle, triangle too. Wrote the book on it. Well, wait a minute. I want to go back to the yeah. because your uh, your book was very intense. I mean, not your book. Your article was very intense, and you had a lot of links that. Uh, pretty much made the case for yourself. Uh, Open Secrets is a website you 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 like to uh, put in your footnotes. What huh? um, the ratio between uh, campaign contributions and right, the money? Right. Okay, good. Yeah, so I want you to evolve on how is it that uh, I want you to emphasize the relationship with politician and individual donors like people like myself yep. who get involved and bundle money to get the client uh, to get the. Um, the candidate elected, he in essence yep. becomes like a client because you're going to ask for favors later sure. on on stuff that you feel is important to move yeah, us so forward.
4: Let's, let's continue on that because yeah, you, that's a good. Uh, thank you for reeling me back in there, uh, uh, Manuel. But good job.
1: That's so, his job as a yeah, host. I, you know, I
4: mentioned the disparity in the money inflow in both ways. You know, from from the people to the politicians, or from the politicians back to the people. So what uh, Manuel is talking about here is that. Uh, I started looking at the campaign contributions in individual industry areas, like I looked at uh, the uh, you know, Wall Street and finance markets. You know, what, does, what do all the major banks and financial investment companies give to different candidates? And what I found out was both of them were almost, it was surprisingly close, close to 50%, and a lot of companies gave to both parties. They didn't just give to one. So now that says, that's the signs of a bribery market. That's where they, they're paying to play. So, in other words, you donate to both candidates. No matter which one wins, you've got some money in their pockets. And then at the end of that, uh, you go, of course, lobby for uh, uh, legislation in your favor versus other people or other competition or other industries. You go lobby for the best deal. And what those companies get back was, uh, in some cases, 4,000-fold. So if the industry gave, you know, 10, uh, let's say, say if the industry gave $10 million, to some, uh, you know, party, then what they got back, all of was often in the billions.
2: Well, if you look at the renewable yeah. energy industry, that is completely held up by uh, government subsidies, loan guarantees, tax credits, mandates—you name it. The whole industry. Yep,
4: yeah. yeah. and we we uh, we know from looking at banking laws that that's one of the places where the accusation is particularly disgusting, you know, is in banking, all the campaign finances from the banks. to The politicians, this is just terrible. And then you go look and the Democrats who are saying this, like Elizabeth Warren, was on the banking committee for four years, like in 2012, 13, 14. She was right there in the middle of the whole thing, right after the meltdown. She didn't call for any prosecutions of any bankers. So here's another case of the bankers all give a lot of money to Democrats. That, and to the politicians, that must be terrible. But then you look at what happened. And the banks got what was it, four hundred and thirty billion dollars back for TARP. They got a four hundred and thirty right. billion dollar payday from government. Wow! Nobody went to and nobody went to jail.
1: No, and the That's one person they did prosecute was some—I uh, believe it was an Indian American or Pakistani American, right? No. Yeah, well, yeah. One, one guy, a lower
2: tiered guy. I well, mean, and uh, there were a yeah. couple of guys who were Mark, running no, a, a right, Bear Stearns hedge fund.
1: Yeah, none of the big none of the big dogs basically. Uh, guess how many
4: bankers went to jail in the SNL crisis? Zero. No. Oh, F&L Mr. Keating. Crisis, they put a thousand. They put a thousand bankers in jail in the SNL crisis. Yeah. So they and under, they, under, under uh, Daddy Bush.
1: Right. And, lot, uh, and uh, did, did you make a correlation between the uh, the campaign uh, donations was there extremely low back then, or is it just principle based? Bush, why didn't his son do that? If he saw what what his dad did, I don't get that.
4: Right, right. So I can tell you uh, what's happened, you know, you're kind of uh, shining a light on the legacy of what's happened to banking regulation. It's back in the 80s and 90s, you remember, uh, uh, Reagan tried to deregulate the bank some. And let me tell you what, guys, a bank is nothing more than a pile of regulations. The, The walls around the boundary and everything. Don't mean anything. A bank is a pile of regulations right. that you either enforce or you don't enforce. So when Reagan tried to deregulate, it, it was a colossally bad idea. It led to the corruption of this of the l industry because they were like they let everybody violate the rules of banking. Is what they did. You can't have that. You got to put people in jail. So when it all came down at the end, and the government had to bail them out, at least Daddy Bush and the courts had the uh, the, the uh, what do you call it the, the good of um, morals, the good morals, to, to investigate and put bankers in jail. They put a 1,000 of them in jail. This crisis was t- 10 times larger, so there should have been 10,000 bankers in jail for the equivalent amount of uh, ratio of money, okay? Wow. That's how bad it was. Literally, 10,000 bankers should have been going to jail right after the, the meltdown.
1: Well, I was referring to the kidding 5. That was under Clinton, I suppose. No, no, that was yeah, back
4: so, so, no, no the kidding 5 ties right into it. What happened is after all the prosecutions were done, you know, it wasn't good enough for the Democrats, for the Republicans, to put 1,000 bankers in jail. If they didn't put those big five in, well, then they just didn't do their job. So that was the way for the Democrats to just urinate on everything good that had been done in the meltdown the actual prosecution. None of that made the news that they put 1,000 bankers in jail. The only thing that got in the news was all the Republicans who invented the bankers, and they kept these five big guys out of jail. It was a propaganda ploy. Wow! Slander the whole to slander the effort.
1: Holy moly! Well, that's.
4: I, I know the guy. Who, I know the guy who was the prosecutor for that. His name's Bill Black, and he's a professor, like I think, up in the University of Minnesota now. And he started writing back around when I was writing my book. Uh, William Black started writing as uh, you know that we're not putting bankers in jail, man. He was one of the first guys to blow the whistles on it. We've tried and, to uh, get him to call I in, but of, I actually looked up his number and called him up and talked to him. And was like, sure enough, man, he was a, he was a chief prosecutor for the whole damn banking crisis in the SNL thing. He put a bunch of them in jail. He likes to brag. He put a thousand jail. He likes to brag. He put a thousand bankers in jail. Isn't it ironic they, that he
1: chose to Minnesota to start teaching?
4: <laughs> no, he was at some other schools before that. He was at University of Missouri for a while. I could, that's when I first called him, and he moved to Minnesota about four or five years ago.
2: Well, so if he'll, you he'll
4: talk to you if you call him up. If you ever want to have him on your show, I'd yeah. be glad to talk to you. He's a, he's a good guy. Now, I will tell you this. If you look at his politics, he's a dang communist.
1: <laughs> that's why he's in Minnesota.
4: It's crazy, man. He's big-time socialist. He's all for socialists. But you know what? He's one of these guys that knows that you don't put the bankers in jail. The banks are corrupt. And he's still blowing the whistle on So I've got to give him some credit for that. That's yeah, a that... Rare, That's a rare liberal there.
1: So, no, in a way, it's, uh, quite frankly, coercion and put away the rich guy. Who, who doesn't love putting a banker in jail? Because most people Let's can't. talk s- about it. Most talk- people don't really like bankers.
4: <laughs> I know, but when they everybody talks about it, but then they go, okay, Obama, you know, why didn't you prosecute the FCIC report? That was the report on the banking industry that Nancy Pelosi commissioned. So a Democrat leads the commission. They go out and investigate the first level of all the crime. And they come back and report. There's been two trillion dollars worth of, of fraud in the banking industry. That was in the report. They say two trillion dollars worth of fraud in like seven different areas. You know, loan originations and override loan underwriting. You know, just all kinds of areas. Areas had fraud.
1: So unbelievable. Uh,
4: what that report? It's called the FCIC report. You can look it up. It's still online at Stanford University. That's where they. It was uh, the, the main guy was out of Stanford. Uh, and it said it identified all this crime, Manuel, and none of it got. Obama just threw the damn thing in the trash. He didn't prosecute a single one.
1: Yeah, because they they you know basically what, elected him. Well, you
4: know what they did? No, you know what they did? They did the smartest thing a corrupt politician could possibly do. Actually, they didn't throw it in the trash. They just put it over near the trash can. <laughs> they kept it. they well, kept it handy because just no in point, case. I guessed it when that when they. Prosecute them? I guessed at the time. I said, you know what? If I'm a corrupt politician, I'm going to hold those charges in abeyance. Right? I'm going to hold them in my back pocket. Right. And when I need to coerce the industry, I'm going to threaten them with prosecution. And sure enough, in uh, like by 2012 or 13, I got an article somewhere. Old Eric Holder was on there saying, now thank you guys. You did a, you did a bunch of stuff wrong. If you don't go along with these new dodd Frank's regulations, you know, we can just start pulling out some, some charges. You know. So he actually he actually made public. The use of the uh, uh, threat of charges instead of just prosecuting them, and that's hideously illegal.
2: And you know, Obama actually did say in a speech to the bankers, "I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks." Bingo, he did. He that. He said it once in a big old pitch. I'm the only one, you know,
1: saving your ass. Right. And that was the deal he offered to the bankers with TARP. All and of those and he also, done. and he also passed Dodd-Frank right after well, the TARP was o- started o-
2: by o- W. So that tells you how what a bunch of rhinos they were.
1: No, but I'm saying that uh, Dodd Frank was passed right after the detoxification of the Obamacare right. debate. Yep. The Obama, yeah, we the whole, were all we were all in uh, Obamacare hangover. Yep. And within three weeks of Obamacare's passage, the Dodd Franks just slipped through the two yep. houses of Congress mm-hmm. onto yep. the president for signature. Everybody but Newt Gingrich were. Find yeah. Yep. And
0: all it is is that
4: if you think of the, the, the I believe, uh, the Glass Steagall Act split
1: the banks up under Yeah, the, Phil Graham's uh oh, the the Glass steagall Act no, was or, repealed. The Glass Steagall was passed
4: the Glass Steagall. That was only thirty seven pages long. Dodge Frank's is like thousands of pages long. It's just a it's just a, a, a hurricane of regulations right. that are too dense to follow. That's and they right that and, they it. And, and it they that... more feds. It creates like a bunch of more unelected positions to regulate the thing, just like the, like it's
2: like created like a hundred feds.
4: Yep, at lower it, levels.
2: It is. Uh, it is. It, it is over uh, over a thousand, like two thousand pages. But worse than that, it there are two hundred and forty three sites in the Dodd Frank statutes where it says the secretary shall thereby yes, delegating exactly. oh, yeah. de- delegating to the secretary of the treasury or other bureaucrats the rulemaking yeah. authority. And oh, what, yes,
4: totally wrong. Totally they, wrong.
2: And and then what they've done though is they've created all these regulations are like barriers to entry, so the, our our banking industry has become more centralized than ever before in the history of America. I mean, and less banks. Alex, well, right? Well, that's get, what I mean. Fewer banks. To, let's
4: get back to this industry and politician relationship thing. Just let me finish yep. that thought. Go ahead. On the uh, on the uh, uh, the use of TARP. So TARP, I can almost guarantee you conversations. Something like this went on at the banks from the regulators. Listen, guys, we're about to bail you out, and whether you like it or not, you better take this money, because if you don't take the money, we're going to press charges, because we have this report right here. The FBI right. report was out by then.
0: Right. We have
4: this report right here, and every one of you, your, your 10,000 of your peers are going to go to jail if we decide to prosecute this. So you can either take this money— yep or or, you're go- or we're gonna prosecute a bunch of bankers coming up and
2: nobody I, I was allowed to not if take if
4: it obama used that language
1: yeah that's true everybody had to accept the tarp right. money because the right. American people weren't supposed I, to find out which bank was hailing
0: if you remember
4: when tarp first came up i think it failed to vote the first time okay right and a bunch of a bunch of uh a bankers actually signed a big old petition you know a bunch of finance people and economists mm-hmm. signed a big old petition in the wall street journal like this this is tarp is really bad you're gonna you're going to ruin this country if you pass this. And then the next, like, two or three days, all the protests just disappeared overnight. That's when they told all the people on Wall Street, all the big finance firms, that if you don't go along with this, we're going to press charges on all the fraud you've been been doing in the stock market. Because that was it was all over, man. The fraud was all over. So that was a big power play by Obama, and it worked like a champ.
2: Well, even, that was even before Obama. I think that was at the end of the W administration.
4: Well, TARP did finish right at the end.
1: Yeah, Obama got up and spoke with him, though. He had already Mm. been elected. All right. Yeah, TARP was presented in a fashion. I remember how they put uh, McCain right next to Bush in the meetings that came out in in the press. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And Obama was over at the head table, Mm. uh, off to the side, as if he's the saint. Who's not going to—because we were all—the voters were pretty upset about the bailing out of the banks. Most of us—
4: they were licking their chops when they saw the, the economy meltdown. Now, Obama really showed them how to take advantage of a crisis.
2: He learned all that in it, Chicago. That's
4: why you, people who say Obama's stupid—that's just—that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Because Obama was a genius in there. He, he, he subjugated the entire banking industry within a year. They were eating out of his hand.
1: Yep. And got him. And, and, and got he, him two terms.
4: And you remember exactly. And you remember they suspended mark-to-market. If, I don't know if you know that.
1: The yeah. Chief,
4: uh, the day the uh, market turned around, it was in uh, late April, I think, or early April, uh, like four days before, uh, four days or just after that, the uh, FASB, FASB, rule from the banking committee came out that they suspended mark-to-market, and you no longer have to qualify your assets to uh, current market prices. That's the whole thing. To, that's when the
0: horses got out of the stall right here.
1: Okay. Tell our audience uh, right. more um, in more detail. We only have two minutes left, so... Uh, I'd like to end it on a, a good explanation about market-to-market uh, accounting.
4: So, Okay, so market-to-market accounting just says that a, uh, at some periodic interval, you know, monthly or quarterly, a bank has to look at all the assets it has on its books and reevaluate their market prices. So like if they owned, if the bank had 10 uh, pieces of property, houses, on their uh, capital list for, for that month, then uh, if housing prices fell 50% in the last month, they would have to mark the value of that capital down 50% and thereby make them, they'd have to take the loans off the market because they would be undercapitalized at that point. You know, if they have collateral, they have to keep it a certain percent, of like 10% of what they loan out. And when mark-to-mark gets suspended, they no longer have to uh, mark those collaterals to market prices, and that means the bank can, can run away with their uh, loan process. In that
1: and sense. Yeah, well... Uh... Tell me, uh, does that make it easier to go to continuously go to the uh, discount window, or has no effect whatsoever?
4: Yeah, it has. Uh, let me think. to do. No, it really doesn't have anything to, the, to do with going to the discount window. Because these uh, like if I tell if I tell you Manuel that you you're ten percent ca- you have to remain ten percent capitalized and you can loan out the rest of the money. That means you can keep ten thousand dollars in your hands and you can loan somebody ninety thousand dollars, no problem. Okay, But you have to keep $10,000 in your hands the whole time.
1: Which seems kind of low to me.
4: <laughs> that, well, that's, it is kind of low. And they've been going lower for the last 20 years. That's one of the reasons we're in big trouble. Because you lower those capitalizations by 1%, and everybody goes, oh, is, that's not a big deal. We just went from 10 to 9%. What's the big deal? Well, it's like, no, you didn't. You just lowered it by 10%. Yeah. You lowered 10 to 9 you just shaved 10%. Difference in capitalization—that's yeah. a huge change, change. So banks? these little changes, everybody thinks, "Oh, it's not a big deal," but they don't realize uh, undercapitalizing is yeah. a big problem right now. Well, and banks
2: like know. Lehman and Bear Stearns when they went under in 2008 were uh, leveraged at 30 or 50 to one.
4: Yep. Yeah. Hey, well, that's the whole thing of the meltdown. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of the one before that. Where oh, when when Bush. Was in office W Bush. Yep. Oh, we got to get back on track. You got two minutes to go. Let's, let me
2: know. No, we got to go, go. Yeah, hey, we got to go.
1: We're 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 about done now. But right, we'd we'll, we'll have to do this quick. next time.
4: Okay, quick. Uh, Joe, did you hear Biden on the radio today? He said he doesn't like to do radio shows. He said on TV, you know, you know why? Because he can't smell. He couldn't smell anybody's hair. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, take right, care, John. We'll have you back.
4: All right. Take care, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
1: Bye, bye. Well, this ends the Concrete <laughs> Conservative Show at WSQF ninety four point five. I FM. think we I think uh, I think we ran the gambit here from uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic.
2: Yep, all and, the way to the
1: end. And uh,
2: Tamara said she'll call again in next week or the next. Okay, she got caught up in a family emergency.
1: Oh, and, the, and my dog ate the homework. See you later. Stay free, my <laughs> friends. This is Mac on the Rock on the Rampage with Victorious Ed Vidal. Take care.